Welcome aboard Celebrity Slave Ship, departing the Gold Coast and making short stops in Bahia, Port-au-Prince, and Havana before our final destination of Savannah. Hi, I'm Miss Pat, and I'll be serving you here in Cabin A. Now, we'll be flying at an altitude that's pretty high, so shackles must be worn at all times. <laughs> If you have any trouble bonding yourself, I'll be more than glad to assist. We also ask that you please refrain from call and respond singing between cabins, as that sort of thing can lead to rebellion. And of course, no drums are allowed on board. <laughs> Thanks for flying, celebrity. And here's hoping we have a pleasant takeoff. Get on board, celebrity slingship. Get on board, celebrity. And finally today, a key chapter in the origin story of Africans in America took place over water. Historians estimate that some 36,000 ships brought nearly 12.5 million Africans across the Atlantic Ocean, according to the Transatlantic Slave Trade Database. But not all survived. Somewhere between 500 and 1,000 ships are believed to have wrecked, but only a handful have been found and documented. This is according to Tara Roberts of a new podcast from National Geographic called Into the Depths. She not only follows a group of black divers, historians and archaeologists, as they try to recover as much as they can of that lost chapter, she decides to become one of them. Through these ships, we could bring lost stories up from the depths and back into collective memory. Just as important, it was a way to help me understand my roots my own family's history, and where I and we belong as Black Americans right now. Tara Roberts is executive producer of Into the Depths, and she is with us now to tell us more about it. Tara Roberts, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Michelle. So first, I'm just going to ask you to give us the short version of what you shared in the podcast, how you kind of just dropped everything, quit your job to pursue this project. <laughs> so tell me how you heard about it and why you think it had that hold over you. Yeah, it was completely by accident, actually. I happened to visit the National Museum of African American History and Culture in D.C., and I ended up on the second floor, which is this tiny floor that most visitors, I think, skip. But on that floor, there was a picture of a group of primarily Black women on a boat in wetsuits, and it really was that picture that captivated me. It stopped me in my tracks because I'd never seen a group of Black women on a boat in wetsuits before. So when I went to find out, well, who are they and what are they doing? I found out that they were a part of this group called Diving with a Purpose and that part of their mission was to search for and help document slave shipwrecks around the world. And from that moment, I was hooked and and to the purpose, why do you and why do they think it's important to unearth these histories and document the remains of these ships from the transatlantic slave trade to the degree that's possible after all these centuries? Well, I think you hit on it when you gave the stats earlier. If there are as many as a thousand potential wrecks out there, but only a handful have been found, that means there's an enormous amount of history that's just missing. 
Mm -hmm. And one of the key figures in this movement is Dr. Albert Jose Jones. He co-founded the National Association of Black Scuba Divers. I just want to play a clip of him describing a particular moment documenting the wreckage of the Henrietta Marie. It's a ship that carried enslaved people and was found off of Key West in 1972. That, That might be a name that some people know. And here's the clip. It felt like you were touching the souls of your ancestors when you were down there. And it involves people that could be your, your own family. Could you talk a bit more about this dive, at Dr. Jones's role in your work, and just what an emotional experience that it can be to connect with these, these wrecks? Yeah, Doc Jones is, is considered the grandfather of black scuba diving. He uh, started the first black diving club, and he started that, Michelle, in 1959. So black folks have been diving for quite a while. Um, but Doc dove on this site, and when he was down there, he decided that it needed to be memorialized in some way. So he came back and he got members of the National Association of Black Scuba Divers together and they raised funds to put a plaque down at the site to honor the people who who died in the Middle Passage. And I think that that is often skipped over in our history books, how many Africans died in the Middle Passage. The number is 1.8 million Africans died in that passing. And who's honoring them? I have to say, I looked that up, and that's the population of Phoenix. Wow. So if you can think about, it's larger than the population of Philadelphia. It's larger than the population of San Antonio. It's larger than the population of Dallas. So if, if to put that into some context, context of how many souls are lost to that, to the bottom of the sea in that, in that passage. So I'm just wondering what that was like for you. Yeah. There are definitely sad notes in this work. Um, when you're faced with the artifacts of the past, but overwhelmingly, I felt so empowered to be part of helping to raise this history from the depths to bring these people back into memory. So before we let you go, you know, we are in a moment when some people don't want to hear about this history at all from what we are observing. There are certain movements in many parts of the country to stop teaching certain things, to withdraw um, certain books from the shelves, withdraw certain stories from the curriculum. Um, And I'm just wondering what you would say to those people based on the work that you and the others have done. I would say that the truth about the Middle Passage and the global slave trade is that it's huge history. Like, it's global history. It's not just Black people's history. There were four continents involved in the global slave trade. It's Europe. It's Africa. It's South America. It's North America. It happened over 400 years. And I, what I am understanding through this work is that there's a way to examine the past that's not inside of shame, it's not inside of anger, and it's not inside of guilt. But we have to look at it, I think, to be able to go through it so that we can heal this space. That was Tara Roberts, National Geographic Explorer. 
um, globalization mandates, of course, from the most powerful white people, these blackouts, um, you have a totally energy independent state like Texas, plenty of natural gas, oil, gasoline, coal. They were forced to keep up with the mandates and convert up to 20% of their power grid to green energy by 2021. Green energy being wind, solar, hydro, battery, etc. So that 20% freezes over and the 80% that's left that always has worked, the oil, the coal, the gas, uh, is not enough to supply the rest of the state. So they have to cut off certain parts of the grid to keep it working. And this is um, what's going to happen in 2025 when that green energy is mandated to be 50% of the grid. What happens when we have a snowstorm then? And it, what happens in Chicago and New York? I mean, where we, it's cold most of the year here. So um, it's big. This green energy thing that they've been pushing um, through this Green New Deal. And five years ago, this wanted to happen in Texas. Um, but they were forced to take fully, perfectly functioning parts of their grid and convert it to these green energy. And now that green energy freezes over and the rest of the grid is all vulnerable. There's another battle in the misinformation wars, renewable energy. False and misleading information about wind and solar is fueling opposition to projects across rural America. Julia Simon reports. Jeremy Kitson's a high school science teacher in Van Wert County, Ohio. Lots of farmland, soy, corn, some wheat, and about 10 miles away, wind turbines. Kitson knows folks on farms near those turbines who told him, You do not want to live under these things. They're noisy. We can't sleep. There's sleep deprivation. So around Christmas 2015, when Kitson heard Apex Clean Energy was planning to expand a project about a mile from his home. I was just like, there's got to be a way to beat him. You got to outsmart them. You got to figure out the science. You got to figure out the economic arguments. You got to figure out what they're going to say and figure out how to counter it. Kitson ran a Facebook group, which has grown to more than 770 followers. On the page, there are dozens of posts with false, partly false, and misleading information about renewable energy. Eventually, because of new state regulations that made it more difficult to locate turbines, which Kitson's group supported, Apex bowed out of the project. Last fall, a group of researchers published a paper looking at the Facebook posts of Kitson's group and another large anti-wind group in Ohio that successfully stopped wind development. Lead author Josh Fergan of the University of Minnesota Duluth says much of the misinformation focused on health and safety. Commonly exploding turbines, right? Turbines falling down, crashing on roads. He says these incidents happen, but they're rare. They usually occur once. But what these Facebook groups do is they'll clip that picture of the spinning, burning turbine and repost it. So it looks like it's constantly and perpetually happened, that these things are exploding in the sky. Kitson says he knows these incidents don't happen a lot, but... I do that just to try to show people what's possible. That'll pique people's interest. These posts are spreading through a network of anti-wind and anti-solar groups across the country. Some of the misinformation comes from groups with ties to the fossil fuel industry, like the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And in recent years, the false claims got a major megaphone. And they say the noise causes cancer. You tell me that one, okay? Former President Donald Trump 
ranted frequently about wind power at his rallies. While some peer-reviewed studies do find links between wind noise and sleep disturbance, there are no known ties to cancer. Trump also raised other anti-wind talking points. If you have a windmill anywhere near your house, congratulations. Your house just went down 75 percent in value. Whether it's physics, health, or economics, Sarah Mills at University of Michigan says false and misleading information can now get mixed up in the decision-making about where to locate renewable energy or whether to have the projects at all. In about half of states, she says, regulations of rural utility-scale solar and wind happen on the local level. These local officials are not necessarily experts in energy. And so... When you have people coming and stating things as facts, like, it's difficult. Like, they're certainly making decisions based on what they're hearing. Last year, a Department of Energy study found that setback regulations now represent the single greatest barrier for locating wind projects in the U.S. They limit how close wind turbines can be to buildings. And Mill says that makes sense to reduce noise and moving shadows. But misinformation can fuel restrictions that are more stringent than needed, she says, and sometimes act as outright bans on renewable energy. In October, a law went into effect in Ohio, giving counties the ability to make exclusion zones with no wind and solar projects. Kitson, the science teacher, testified in support of them, with the argument that turbines negatively affect property values. He referenced a study by Ben Hohen at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, but Hohen says Kitson got his statistics wrong. We have not found evidence of property value impacts despite studying it over multiple periods of time. Kitson's Exhibit A also featured pictures with turbines towering over homes, but Hohen says they were taken using a long focal length lens, a technique that magnifies distant objects. Davi Wilson with Apex Clean Energy says across the U.S., her company is finding that in a climate of misinformation, community engagement is increasingly difficult. I think for a long time and maybe still in some places, developers thought, well, we just need to give better information. We just need to give more information. And it's like, it's so not about that at all. It's about who you trust and if anybody's going to believe you if you're a company. 60% of U.S. electricity still comes from fossil fuels. Climate scientists say there's an urgent need to shift towards clean energy a lot faster than is happening now. Michigan researcher Mills says policymakers need to be paying close attention to these rural conflicts over wind and solar farms and the role of misinformation. At the end of the day, like if local governments are not setting rules that allow for the infrastructure to be cited, Those policies cannot be achieved. Meanwhile, this year, two more states, Washington and Kansas, have proposed bills that would limit rural wind and solar. For NPR News, I'm Julia Simon. Make sure you shore up that flank, Black Falcon. Um, are you talking to me because I'm the Green Falcon? No time for that, Black Falcon. Purple Falcon, our missiles. Roger that. Arming missiles now. Uh, Battle formations, we're going in. Hey, Roger that. Hold up. Copy that. Roger. My falcon is green. Hey, 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 we can talk about our falcon colors when we get back to base, Black Falcon. Right now, we got a mission to do. Fall into falcon formation. Well, here's the issue, is that you're going to give me an order, I'm not going to know you're talking to me. Because... I'm not in a Black Falcon. Come on, chill it out, Black Falcon. Yeah, Black Falcon. Relax. First of all, I don't like the way you guys are saying black. Second of all, there is no Black Falcon. I'm Green Falcon. Black Falcon. From cows to falcons. 
The commitment to being a game hawker is big. The new documentary from Patagonia follows a falconer on the front lines of raptor conservation in California. Falconry gets its hooks into you so deeply. Falconry is just this deep attachment to the bird. We're attracted to animals that are powerful. People want to get close to that. People think this is just such a romantic thing to do. They don't realize how difficult it is. Falconers take birds of prey under their wing, so to speak, teach them to hunt, and then release them back into the wild. Josh Eisenberg documents all that in the new film Game Hawker, and he's with us right now. Hey, Josh. Hey, Steve. And Falconer Sean Hayes, the central character of the film, he's with us as well. Hey, Sean. Hello. And and just a quick note, the film contains some ugly language about the kind of racism that, that Sean has seen as well. So I want to I want to get into it first with you, Sean, because you grew up a, a, a young black man in Riverside, California, pretty urban place, uh, what, 40, 50 miles east of L.A., not necessarily known for its birding community. How, how did you get interested in falconry in the first place? Just being interested in birds, like I, like I said in the film, you know, I've I've had pigeons as a kid growing up, and one day I watched my one of my pigeons get killed by a, a resident Cooper, Cooper's hawk. And so that was one of the uh, paths that led me to falconry. But, you know, there's so many. But if I had to pick one, it would just have to be that I was always interested in birds. If you didn't know much about falconry, Sean, I mean, how is it different from, from you know, birding or owning a pet bird or going to look at birds? That's what a uh, falconry basically is, and you know, in a nutshell, it's just just a glorified way of bird watching. You know, that that's a quote from Aldo Leopold. Actually, it's different from a pet because we don't really actually consider our birds as pets, and you can't because they don't they don't have that personality. As a, as a falconer, our job is to go out and uh, hunt with these birds. As I mentioned at the outset, there's some some um, language that we want to warn you about, and there's a part in the film, Sean, where you wrestle with racism within the falconry community, especially here in the United States. I want to play some tape of that. I've had a couple of run-ins and some scary moments when I was traveling with my birds. I have to remember, I'm a black man going into communities that some of these people never even met. The only time they see a black person is on TV. Some guy stole one of my falcons. And in my state club, a guy walks up to me and starts poking me in my chest, calling me a nigger. I'm always looking over my shoulder. I have to worry about where I go with my birds. You actually, Sean, you say that you don't attend falconry meets anymore. I mean, that. That must be really hard to not feel welcome. I mean, you even say in the film that you feel more wanted in other countries than you do here in the United States. Um, how do you deal with that? And and where have you gone around the world? Uh, the first part of your question, yeah, it was it was hard on me, and it's disappointing. But what I did is I had to reevaluate how I was going to practice my falconry. And what I did is I realized that I didn't need a falconry organization to justify myself as a falconer or a person. 
and I just moved on. I practiced my falconry uh, usually alone. So I got accustomed to being alone and enjoying the experiences with my birds alone. So it's it's been pretty enjoyable. The downside to that is that there are still a few people in some of these organizations that I, I, I do uh, miss, but it's really hard to be a part of a club that accepts the racism and won't address the racism that has been directed at me and other falconers in the past. So I, I've just learned to uh, just move forward and not let it uh, affect my falconry. Um, where it's taken me is to places like this. I've, I've met people like Josh and Brett and, you know, rekindle the relationship I had with Yvonne Chouinard of Patagonia and doing projects with this. And my falconry practice and how I go about falconry and how I think about falconry has taken me all over the world. So the things that I have been doing over the last 15 to 20 years have replaced uh, my presence at falconry events. And it's, it's, it's hard because what I'm afraid of, I don't want the things that happened to me to happen to another person of color, and especially when they're kids, because when kids see this film or they experience falconry, see falconry, I don't want those kids or anyone to have to go through what I went through. Yeah, even in, in the film, you say that one of your teachers when you were a kid said maybe you should focus on being a trash collector. Wow! Hey, yo, drama, hold up, son. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Stop the motherfucking record. Right. I want you to pondy replay, drama. Pondy replay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, even in, in the film, you say that one of your teachers, when you were a kid, said maybe you should focus on being a trash collector. Someone actually said that to you, right, as a child? Yes. I can tell you the day. I can tell you what time it was. And even at that young age, being in, 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 the, the, in the elementary school, I knew that uh, what that person was saying was wrong, but I didn't understand at the time. I didn't really get a full glimpse of what, you know, racism is and uh, how people would view me just because of who I am. And um, that, that, that stuck with me. I've had other teachers say other things to me as well. And it's unfortunate that, you know, people say that to me. What, like I said, what, what scares me is that I don't want and would hate to hear that uh, some other person that wants to do some of the things that I enjoy are being told the same thing. And it's, it's, it's kind of sad to know that there are people that are out there that are still continuing to send that message. Josh, I know it was, it was important for you to capture that sense of, of aloneness. I mean, you feel it in the film in good ways and bad ways. I mean, how do you, how do you as a filmmaker, a nature filmmaker reconcile with the fact that, you know, the outdoors has not been, and, and by the way, is still not, to this day, very welcoming to people of color? Yeah, I mean, that's an important question. And and I think, um, I hope that uh, part of that reckoning is, uh, you know, m making films and um, telling stories um, about people of color or people just who sort of defy the, the stereotype of the outdoors person uh, who um, pursue these passions outside, you know, whether it's... Um, 
falconry and game hawking like Sean, or, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's, there's stories, uh, that could sort of take you into the world of rock climbing, skiing, um, fishing, any of this stuff. You know, I think we just need to see different kinds of people out there and, 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 and doing this stuff. And, and, um, when you show kids and, uh, just or adults or anybody who sort of wants to see themselves represented out in the outdoors, um, uh, these kinds of stories, I think it, you know, I, I hope that it helps to some degree. So that's right. We move it to Mississippi and you know how that spell M I crooked letter, crooked letter, I crooked letter, crooked letter, I hook back, hook back. This month marks 55 years since the assassination of an NAACP leader in the city of Natchez, Mississippi. On February 27, 1967, Warlist Jackson Sr. died when a bomb attached to his car exploded. At the time, Jackson was the treasurer of the NAACP in Natchez. He died on his way home from working, his first day of work at the Armstrong Tire and Rubber Plant. He had just been promoted to a job never held by a black man before. Warless Jackson, Sr., was 36 years old, the father of five. The FBI suspected the assassination was carried out by the inner circle of the Ku Klux Klan, known as the Silver Dollar Group. But no one was ever charged in his murder. This tragic story is told in a new documentary that examines the civil rights struggle in Natchez. It's called American Reckoning. This is an excerpt from the film featuring Warless Jackson Sr.'s son, Warless Jackson Jr., who recalls his father's assassination at the time he was just eight years old. I stood right here, working on my bicycle in front of my house. I was trying to get my banana seat right, and I had a big, nice, big, fat tire on the back of it. I used to see those uh, guys riding those choppers. Man, I wanted to make my bike like that, too, a little 20-inch bicycle. I heard the explosion in my mind, like, what is that? I never heard anything like that before. I jumped on my bicycle. I shot right down there and shot straight to this here, street here. You can look straight down the street to MLK. I'm, I'm noticing people outside of their houses, you know, and I just rode up there and started looking at Chevrolet in the street. Not knowing who he was. And seeing the truck. Knowing who truck that was. And not being able to connect the dots together. I saw a shoe that he was wearing. And I grabbed that shoe and came to the house. And later I heard from my mother as I grew up. I had come back with his flesh in the shoe. An excerpt from the new documentary, American Reckoning. The film goes on to look at how the community in Natchez, Mississippi, responded to the assassination of Warless Jackson, Sr. Nearly 1,000 Negroes are marching silently through the center of Natchez, protesting the bomb-slaying Monday night of civil rights leader, father of five, Wallace Jackson. 
Jeff Jackson, an official of the local NAACP, had left his new job last night at the Armstrong Rubber Company, presumably en route home. The cab and the truck were completely demolished. My father looked out for the black community in this town. And believe me, this community loved my father. He was just a god to me. father sacrifices his life so that we can have a better community and you don't have to be afraid. But will we ever get justice? They've been killing us here for 400 years. Right. It's got to come to a head. And we're sick and tired of that. We done built this country. The sooner the white people realize that we aren't going nowhere, the better it's going to be for all of us. Wake up, white people. Before it's too late. An excerpt from the new documentary Frontline and Retro Report's new documentary American Reckoning, premiering Tuesday, February 15th, on PBS and online at pbs.org slash frontline. YouTube and in the PBS video app. The project is supported by WNET's Chasing the Dream. We're joined now by three guests. Denise Ford Jackson, the daughter of Warless Jackson Sr., as well as the film's directors, Brad Lichtenstein and Yoruba Richen. It's great to have everyone with us. And Yoruba, former producer at Democracy Now!, great honor to have you back as well. Yoruba, I want to begin with you. Um, Talking about this just devastating story uh, that is many storylines put together. It is the story of a city in this country where, at the highest levels, the uh, conspiracy of the government against the black population of Natchez. And the fact that we did not Many people in this country, I should say, had not heard of Warless Jackson, let alone his assassination, his murder. Absolutely. Um, thank you, uh, Amy, for having us on. Um, it's a story that when Brad uh, told me about, uh, Brad had been developing it, and he'll tell you <laughs> about that for a couple of years before asking me to partner with him on this project. But when he told me about it, um, I was you know, immediately uh, intrigued and interested uh, in this story that I'd never heard of. I'm always love projects where I am learning something and uh, uncovering uh, a story that hadn't been told. And uh, then when I saw the uh, trailer that Brad initially made, and I saw that the amazing archival footage that really documented what was happening uh, in Natchez uh, and the murder of uh, Warless Jackson Sr. I had never seen, you know, this archival footage. I'd never seen, uh, a, I'd never seen a, um, a, you know, the the documentation of the story that was happening, like in real time. Denise, it's 55 years later, but our deepest condolences go to you and your family as you live this every day of your lives. It is so clear in this documentary. Yes, it is. And thank you for having me this morning. So, you know. if you can talk about—I mean, the story of Parchman, your mother 
was in Parchment, right? Your mother was one of those arrested. She, like your dad, um, would was unrelenting in trying to challenge the racist system. And they describe this horror of being put in these cold cells, stripped naked and forced to drink laxatives uh, so that—and they obviously had no access to bathrooms. And this is pure torture. What happened to your mother after this? Well, she uh, became ill. Uh, she formed a, a illness that kept her bedridden, and that uh, made my dad had to take care of the five children, cook for us, comb our hair. And then once she was able to, she came up with a uh, sickness called lupus, which nothing kept her down, but she was able to, you know, regain her strength back. And she was able to uh, do what she needed to do for the family. So she's ill. She's come out of parchment. Your father's continuing to organize. That was 65. Your father's assassinated in 67. Um, tell us what happened. And did you—I mean, you're, you're a little kid at the time, but this ominous sense of the targeting of your family. The only thing I can uh, relate to is that I know that my dad uh, was under a lot of pressure or uh, being threatened with, you know, being uh, able to accept—he wanted to accept a promotion at Armstrong. He discussed it with my mom. My mom told him not to accept a position, but he was a man that didn't take no for an answer. They were trying to make a— uh, Staying here in the county, in the, in the city of Natchez, to let people know that you know we as a black was just as capable of handling these supervisor positions as a white man, even though they said these positions were for white only. But my father took a stand to make out, want to make our community better, and my mother was one who was objective to it, but he wouldn't take no. He didn't. He he wouldn't accept the word no. He said, "I'm gonna take this stand." because it was—it uh, gave him a five-cent raise to help him with the five children that, you know, that he was trying to raise. I even told, I even told people that back when uh, Clarence Thomas was being appointed to the Supreme Court. Say, man, that's a stone, Tommy. Everybody, I said, you know. I said, yeah, well, I said, but you didn't have nothing to do with him being there. One thing. And you ain't going to have nothing to do with him leaving. And if you do have something to do with it, they'll replace him in five minutes if they want to. They don't have to go through you and ask you nothing. If they want Clarence Thomas to be your spokesperson, that's what he's going to be. And ain't nothing you can do about it unless you can deal with them. President Biden plans to personally interview potential nominees to the Supreme Court this week, and likely among them will be federal judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson. Jackson isn't new to Supreme Court consideration. She was seen as a long-shot pick back in 2016, when former President Obama was looking to fill a vacancy. This go-around, she is seen as a leading contender. Jeff Bennett has this report on how she got here. And that I'm even-handedly applying the law in every case. 
Kintaji Brown-Jackson has a resume seemingly tailor-fit for the moment. Harvard grad, Supreme Court clerk, and a federal judge with a deep history in public service. There is a direct line from my, my defender service to what I do on the bench. D.C. born and Miami raised, Jackson stood out early, excelling in high school as class president and on the debate team. Even then, her goal was clear. She's quoted in her senior yearbook, saying, I want to go into law and eventually have a judicial appointment. Her teenage years were key to achieving that, as she put it in 2017. It was my high school experience at a, as a competitive speaker that taught me how to lean in despite the obstacles. With honors degrees from Harvard and Harvard Law, Jackson scored three federal clerkships, including one under the justice she may now replace. Justice Breyer plucked me from obscurity and gave me the opportunity of a lifetime. And I will say she is adored among the Breyer clerk family. She made a lasting impression, said fellow Breyer clerk and former acting U.S. Solicitor General Neil Katyal. She's fearless and also she's a real person. Um, and sometimes that's not always true with Supreme Court justices who live in an elite, rarefied atmosphere. But she's a judge who's never forgotten the human side of judging. She's seen that human side up close, with family on both sides of the justice system. Her brother working for the Baltimore Police Department and her uncle serving a life sentence for a cocaine conviction. Justice demands this result. She worked to understand and improve the system as a public defender and as vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission. That is an unusual addition and I think a valuable perspective. Margaret Russell is a constitutional law professor who says Jackson's criminal defense background sets her apart. There are many former prosecutors who are already on the bench. But what's interesting about a public defender and really quite rare on the court, it's been a couple of decades, is that focus on the indigent defendant, someone who is really um, lacking in opportunity, often despised, often overlooked. On the Sentencing Commission, Jackson continued that work, fighting for more equitable drug penalties. There is no federal sentencing provision that is more closely identified with unwarranted disparity and perceived systemic unfairness than the 100 to 1 crack powder penalty distinction. That was the first of three Senate confirmations for Jackson. In 2012, she was nominated to the federal bench in Washington, D.C., introduced by then-Congressman Paul Ryan, who's related to Jackson by marriage. But my praise for Katanji's intellect, for her character, for her integrity, it's unequivocal. She's an amazing person. She earned a reputation on the district court for being thorough and methodical. You can tell she has that speech and debate background because she likes to uh, engage with the parties. Sanchi Kare and Neha Sabarwal clerked for Jackson and say they were struck by her work ethic. One thing that she would tell us when I was clerking for her is that, you know, you can't always expect to be the smartest person in the room, but you can promise to be the hardest working. And she truly lives by that philosophy. And by the warm welcome she extended. And she came out of her office, huge smile, gave me a huge hug um, and told me how excited she was that I would be working for her. Um, and that sort of set the tone for the rest of my clerkship experience. A memory that I had of, that I still have of her is this relay race in which 
several DC Circuit and DDC chambers participated. And at the judge's suggestion, we made matching t-shirts and set up a training schedule and lined up everyone in chambers to participate because she just has so much spirit for everything that she does and her diligence is really contagious. It was there on the district court that Jackson sentenced more than 100 people and penned some of her best known opinions. In 2017, she presided over the so-called Pizzagate conspiracy case, delivering a four-year prison sentence for a man who fired his gun in a D.C. pizza shop, wrongly believing it was home to a child sex ring. And in 2019, she ordered that former Trump White House counsel Don McGahn comply with a congressional subpoena during the Russia investigation. Siding against the Trump administration, she plainly wrote, presidents are not kings. One thing is clear. The 120-page ruling had a purpose. It came up at her third Senate appearance, this one for the D.C. Court of Appeals, seen as a tryout for a Supreme Court hearing. I am both humbled and very grateful to be here once again. Republicans took aim at Jackson's public defender clients. Have you ever represented a terrorist at Guantanamo Bay? About 16 years ago when I was a federal public defender and her identity. What role does race play, Judge Jackson, in the kind of judge that you have been and the kind of judge you will be? I don't think that race plays a role in the kind of judge that I have been and that I would be. Behind her at those hearings, her husband, Dr. Patrick Jackson, and one of their two daughters. The pair met in college and were, as she says, an unlikely match at first. He and his twin brother are, in fact, sixth-generation Harvard. By contrast, I am only the second generation in my family to go to any college, and I'm fairly certain that if you traced my family back past my grandparents, who were raised in Georgia, by the way, you would find that my ancestors were slaves on both sides. The yeas are 53, the nays are 44, the nomination is confirmed. She was ultimately confirmed with 53 votes, all 50 Democrats plus Republican senators Susan Collins, Lisa Murkowski, and Lindsey Graham. That put Jackson, now 51 years old, in the seat Everybody formerly held seat. by another Supreme Court hopeful. Today I am nominating Chief Judge Merrick Brian Garland to join the Supreme Court. Before then-President Obama made that decision in 2016, Jackson's 11-year-old daughter wrote in with her own suggestion. Dear Mr. President, while you are considering judges to fill Justice Scalia's seat on the Supreme Court, I would like to add my mother, Katanji Brown Jackson, of the District Court to the list. Six years later, it seems President Biden might be listening. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Jeff Bennett. Medical apartheid, the dark history of medical experimentation on black Americans from colonial times to the present. A recent study finds medical providers' racial and ethnic biases can influence how they deliver health care. Those differences can lead to larger health disparities. But where does medicine start in terms of fixing the problem? It's something Dr. Anita Johnson thinks a lot about. Dr. Johnson is a breast surgical oncologist and chief of surgery at Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Noonan. And when we spoke recently, I asked her if she's seen such racial biases play out in her experience. I've been a breast surgical oncologist for over 25 years. So within the healthcare system, I have seen it. Uh, I think that it's an issue in any hospital system. So when it comes to physicians and during their training, 
uh, cultural sensitivity is key. In some cases, all physicians don't get that training. So when we're taking care of individuals, whether they are African-American descent or uh, Asian descent, uh, sometimes um, the, the culture issue is significant. And, and, you know, we are challenged by that. You know, 25 years ago, we probably wouldn't even be talking about this. Talk about the kind of progress that you've seen over those, um, you know, few decades. Well, there's a more freedom to talk about it. You know, the imagery, uh, particularly of Black women, we we must be careful on because uh, we don't want to stereotype. Uh, we don't want to make comments as they're difficult, uh, that um, their cancers are more difficult to treat than others just because they're Black women, because most of it is due to the biology. And so um, when we are a healthcare provider, whether we're nurses, physicians, or advanced practitioners, uh, culture is uh, important, and we must uh, be sensitive to their needs. Uh, but all patients are human beings and should be treated as such. What prompted you to go into medicine? My mother, when I was a child, she was uh, quite ill. And so I decided at age eight, I wanted to become a doctor. So I uh, went to you know, college and, and then medical school and actually was going to become an OBGYN and switched over to surgery. And I love taking care of women. Uh, what I love about being a breast surgical oncologist is that the research, the treatment is always changing. We know we have data from the American Cancer Society that the death rates are declining. Uh, and that's across the board, including for Black women. It's getting a little bit better. So I just enjoy what I do. Uh, I'm able to provide women with better options uh, now than when I first came out of my fellowship. Do you find that women of color open up more to you? I do. You know, I'm going to be honest. I, sometimes when I walk in the room and um, you know, I have a diverse staff here, and, and they tell me that they're so happy to see me. So um, it is personal sometimes. And so I treat all races and ethnicities and always have, but there's so very few of us. And so we know for uh, African-American women physicians, uh, we're only 2% of the uh, physician workforce. And so there are very few of us. And so um, they are more comfortable. I think, you know, sometimes there's a language barrier with other providers and uh, we may be able to communicate more effectively. You know, it, it does play a role in that. What advice do you give if someone wants to become a young person wants to become a, a physician? I encourage it. And so um, because one thing about what you do in life, uh, you don't want to not be a doctor because of student loan debt, because you don't want to spend your life not doing, having your dream job. You know, I have a dream job. Uh, that's what I tell people. I used to tell folks that, you know, Oprah thought she had the best job. You know, uh, if I ever met her, I would tell her, no, you know, I, I probably have the best job, but I get quite a bit of joy in my work. Dr. Anita Johnson is a breast surgical oncologist and chief of surgery at Cancer Treatment Centers of America in Atlanta. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for talking to me this afternoon. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you again. Take care. Tesla has become a major automaker. It has also faced a slew of allegations of racism and sexual harassment from its employees. 
Now, California's Agency for Fair Employment Claims is suing Tesla, accusing the company of creating a pervasively hostile environment for black employees, which Tesla denies. NPR's Camila Dominoski joins us to talk about the case. Hi, Camila. Hi, Alyssa. So what kinds of allegations are in the lawsuit? Well, it accuses Tesla of allowing pervasive, egregious harassment and discrimination at the Fremont plant in Northern California. And the 39-page report lists example after example. It's, it's just page after page of allegations. Copious use of racial slurs, including the N-word. Racist graffiti. Black workers and only black workers assigned to scrub the floor on hands and knees. Black workers being denied promotions, being punished more severely than colleagues, and being retaliated against. This is not about a single person or incident. It's sweeping, and the state seeking monetary damages and an end to the behavior. How has Tesla responded to the lawsuit? In a blog post, Tesla denies that it tolerated this behavior. It says it has always disciplined employees who engage in misconduct. The the company also says that the alleged misconduct appeared to cover a time period from 2015 to 2019 and that it's unfair to focus on events from, quote, years ago. California disputes that, claiming the problems date back farther and are ongoing with new complaints in 2022. Other parts of Tesla's response have nothing to do with the allegations of racism. Tesla said no company has done more for sustainability or the creation of clean energy jobs. And it criticized the state for suing Tesla, quote, at a time when manufacturing jobs are leaving California. And this isn't the first time Tesla has been accused of having a hostile workplace. How have other cases ended? Yeah, and to be clear, other car makers have also faced these kinds of lawsuits. There's a long history of racism and sexual harassment in auto plants, and Tesla's been accused of both. But most relevant for this case, Tesla has faced multiple lawsuits over racism. The most famous was from Owen Diaz, who spoke with me this week. He worked at Fremont in 2015 and 2016. He sued, citing racist slurs and graffiti. He says he complained about a supervisor harassing him, and Tesla did not protect him. This is a guy that drew a piccaninny and threatened me with physical violence. And I asked them to look at the cameras and instead of them, they rewarded this guy. As in, they gave him another job. Tesla fought this case and lost big. Last year, a jury awarded Diaz more than $100 million, most of that designed to punish Tesla. But Tesla has appealed and continues to defend its actions. What does Owen Diaz make of this new case? He says it's sad that his case apparently wasn't enough to change Tesla's approach. We're living in 2022. It shouldn't have to be a Black person should have to go to work and refer to their job as a slave ship, as a plantation. Both of those phrases come up in this new lawsuit. What makes this California case so significant? Well, it's the state itself bringing the case on behalf of all black Tesla workers. And that's a big deal because many of these workers cannot sue on their own. Tesla, like a lot of employers, uses arbitration clauses. And that means when people are hired, they have to sign away their right to take their company to court for anything. Instead, they go to arbitration where companies are much more likely to win. Diaz didn't have an arbitration clause, so he got his day in court. But he thinks a lot about the people who didn't. These arbitrations are not good. All it does is takes uh, something that's really going on, sweeps it under the table, and keeps it out of the public eye. 
So this lawsuit brings these stories into the public eye. And I'll note, Congress has banned arbitration clauses for sexual assault. Uh, Diaz would like him to ban it for racism, too. Yeah. NPR's Camila Dominoski, thank you so much. Thank you. Charlotte for Rob Ott for Rob Ott. Error human. Every time you ask Alexa to turn on your lights or play a song, you're using AI. But AI is also put to work in more serious ways, like facial recognition software by law enforcement. Some critics say there's a troubling lack of diversity among those who create the programs, and that is causing serious harm for people of color. We're joined now by Angel Bush. She's the founder of Black Women in AI, a company providing mentorship, education, and empowerment for Black women in the field. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So to start with, can you help us understand what's at stake here? Can you kind of give an example of how an AI program can get something wrong if it's created without diversity in mind? When we have these products and services and softwares, we have to understand that what's at stake could literally be someone's life. For example, there was a young man in Detroit. He was actually arrested in front of his family based on facial recognition. And they showed him the photo and he he said, that is not me. But the officers proclaimed, well, the artificial intelligence says that it is you. And so it's a sad day in America when we have to prove that we're innocent. How could code get something like that wrong? How could code just look at his face and say that he's somebody else? It's all in the data. It's all in the algorithm. For example, if we wanted to train something on what a cat looks like, and we only put in black cats, for example, if you try to identify an orange cat or a gray cat or something like that, the computer would not identify that because that is not a part of the data set. But this can apply not just to, you know, cases of the criminal justice system. I understand that this can apply to, you know, other parts of people's lives. What are other examples of ways poor AI code could impact somebody's daily life? It can affect you and determine where you live, whether you get a loan for a home, your FICA score, your scores. It can determine a lot of different things as far as how your health care is provided. And in terms of the criminal justice system, some of the systems are determining whether people are allowed parole based on artificial intelligence and trying to remove the human that is in the loop. Now, is this a situation of overt bias or racism, or is this unconscious bias, ways that people don't know that they are setting up a system to not properly serve all of the people who may be using it? Uh, this is a system of unconscious bias when you don't have diversity, when you don't have people in the room to say, well, let's step back on this data, because what's happening is people are using historical data to solve current problems. So can you explain a little bit more about why historical data in particular would be a problem? Because the historical data doesn't necessarily represent what's happening in the world right now. Where are you getting this data from? Have you cleaned the data? Have you looked at the data to see if it reflects current trends was there diversity when you first collected the data, or is this based on your own bias? Is this a problem of big tech companies not being welcoming to Black engineers? It is. If the pandemic has taught us anything, companies are going to have to pivot and reimagine their company culture and what it takes to create 
a world where everyone feels welcome. And that's one of the things that Black Women in AI is definitely looking to do. So you're talking about diversifying AI engineers. It seems like that's just one step that could target the issues surrounding this entire ecosystem. But it's also not an all-encompassing solution. Should we be reconsidering how AI is used in systems like the criminal justice system or even just in more innocuous ways in our lives? Yes, exactly. I think what we have to do is take a step back. Unfortunately, we can't put everything back in the box, but we have to look at governance. It's very important that the government, the U.S. government and all other governments start to look at how this is affecting people's daily lives. Because as we know, artificial intelligence affects every aspect of our lives. And until we can get a hold and a grasp of how it's going to affect someone negatively, then we have to pause. That was Angel Bush, founder of Black Women in AI. Angel, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. Take, for example, hate crime legislation a perennial progressive carve-out in the face of accumulating evidence that defendants of color are disproportionately subjected to hate crime enhancements. Incarceration critics are beginning to realize that criminalizing identity-based animus is a double-edged sword metaphor. In fact, the population of identity Protecting criminal law has given states another weapon in the enforcement arsenal. In May 2016, the governor of Louisiana signed the Blue Lives Matter law, making Louisiana the first state to treat offenses against public safety workers as hate crimes. Now, so many ways I could look at that again. Unexpected. I look back at that, but I mean... For real, for real, non-white people are the most real. The hate crimes trial of the three men who were convicted of murdering Ahmaud Arbery when he was out for a run in Georgia. That was a state of Georgia murder conviction. The new trial is on federal hate crimes charges of killing Arbery because he was black. The three murderers are white and are not denying they have made racist statements in the past. And there was another hate crime in Manhattan's Chinatown this weekend, or was there? 35-year-old Christina Lee died in a way that is so many women's nightmare. A stranger followed her on the street and attacked her as she entered her home. That was on Christie Street in Chinatown. A 25-year-old homeless man said to be mentally ill and recently released after a misdemeanor charge of randomly punching a 62-year-old man at a subway station has been arrested and charged. He has not been charged with a hate crime as of now, but there was a protest in the neighborhood denouncing Asian hate crimes. The victim was Asian American. The alleged killer was not. The New York Times calls Ms. Lee the latest person of Asian descent injured or killed in a string of random attacks in New York City, many of them committed by people who had severe mental illness. Now, the NYPD reported in December that anti-Asian hate crime reports tripled in 2021 compared to the year before and account for a quarter of all hate crime reports in the city. The largest share of such complaints, more than 30 percent, 
to the police was for hate crimes against Jews, but reported hate crimes against Asian Americans have been growing at the fastest rate. Nationally, as reported on the news site Nikkei Asia and elsewhere, there were 274 reported incidents targeting Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders in eight cities, more than four times as many as the year before, according to data from the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University. New York City accounted for nearly half the total at 133, followed by San Francisco with 60 and Los Angeles with 41. With me now is Brian Levin, director of the Center for the Study of Hate and Extremism at California State University. It's the branch in San Bernardino. He's a civil rights lawyer who has previously been with the Southern Poverty Law Center's Klan Watch and Militia Task Force in Montgomery, Alabama. He is also a former NYPD officer. Professor Levin, thanks for your time today. Welcome to WNYC. Thank you so much for having me. Just one, one quick point. Um, the, the data that we have from the eight cities, uh, it, it, it wasn't four times, although New York uh, went from the 30s into the 130s. But what I think is so interesting, just bear with me, the eight cities that we looked at, and we have more coming in every day, uh, these are ones that tend to be higher hate crime reporting cities. A lot of them have hate crime units, specialized investigation protocols, etc. But just bear with me. Those cities alone, and this is preliminary, stuff can be changed later on if they find something was not a hate crime. But listen to this, 274 hate crimes, suspected hate crimes just in those cities, official police preliminary data, 274. Last year, the FBI counted 279. So for the whole country. So we're, we're just five mm-hmm. shy of what last year's numbers were. And in some cities, Last year, we hit records or probable records. One last quick thing. 1995 and 96 were the peak years nationally for anti-Asian hate crime uh, with 356 in 96. I think we may very well break that this year. We're seeing horrendous records being shattered. That being said, as you pointed out, New York has a bulk of these Uh, these cases. What we're finding is large, densely populated coastal cities with areas like a Koreatown or a Chinatown and that have an Asian American population that is significantly higher than the national average. That's where you're going to see uh, a a lot of these. Last, in 2020, just bear with me, Uh in in 2020, we found eventually in the you know dozens of cities that we looked at, about a 124% increase. When the FBI data came out, they only showed 73% increase. How is that possible? As you spread out the number of agencies and cities that give data, remember that in any given year, listen to this, 85 to 89% report affirmatively zero hate crimes, including over 70 cities of 100,000 or more that said we had nothing in 2020. So that's why it moderates by the time the FBI comes out with their data later in the year. What this data is great for, though, no matter how you slice it, is looking at trends. Mm -hmm. Right. And you were quoted in that Nikkei Asia story saying generally these increases are most pronounced in large, densely populated coastal cities with high Asian populations 
and extensive mass transit systems. So you were just explaining right now why it would tend to occur in highly populated coastal cities with high Asian populations. What's the relationship you're suggesting between these hate crimes and mass transit? In New York City, uh, a large number of hate crimes uh, were in, in the subways, in the transit system. And in this latest horrific incident in New York, police have not charged the alleged killer with a hate crime, at least not so far. But there was a protest near the scene of the murder denouncing it as a hate crime. Here's one of those protesters named Susan Lee. I'm at the point where I can't take it anymore. Our elected officials need to act. I am begging them to act so that not another life is lost. Too many lives have been lost. This is supposed to be a time of celebration in our community, and we're holding vigils. That is not the way we should be operating right now. Supposed to be a time of celebration, the Lunar New Year period, and instead we're holding vigils, she said, in case there was too much background crowd noise for you to really hear it, listeners. So, Professor Levin, how do you, as an expert on hate crimes, judge whether it was hate-motivated or not, and how does the law judge it? Well, thanks for those great questions. First of all, I'm not the arbiter, but the law sets a very high standard with regard to hate crimes. Um, The FBI, for instance, came out with a checklist of various items that are relevant. And one of the relevant items is, is there a holiday around this time? How does the community feel? And it's really a totality of the circumstances kind of thing. Here's the problem. Communities feel this pain as an act of terrorism. Whether or not we can get the proper evidentiary Legos together to, to, to establish that. Many homicide cases actually are not tried as hate crimes because it doesn't add a significant amount to the eventual penalty. But for communities, this feels like an act of ongoing terrorism. So what we have to do is address those issues and, 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 and tell the community that irrespective of what the, the, the high and narrow legal threshold is, we are going to be part of a rainbow of community resilience. And we will be there uh, in, in a variety of ways. For instance, providing patrols, having outreach, meeting with uh, government and law enforcement on a, on a, a regular basis. But this is like a scar that just keeps happening. Um, for instance, uh, the, the James Byrd killing, the Matthew Shepard killing, those were not tried as hate crimes. And a lot of times prosecutors want a tight factual case, particularly when they can establish, bear with me, there are two things. Uh-huh. Intent, intent is your awareness, your level of awareness in committing the crime. Most of the the things that we look at with regard to intent are, I meant to do this crime and I knew what the harms and effects would be. With hate crimes, you have to establish an additional uh, uh, factual uh, uh, finding, and that is that the crime was done in whole or significant part because of the person's actual or perceived 
group membership or mm -hmm. even the association. In other words, if I'm going out with an Asian person and they, they punch me because I'm with an Asian person, that would be a, a hate crime as well. But bottom line is this is a terrible thing. In my heart, I, I believe this uh, probably was, but it doesn't matter what I think. It matters what, how communities respond on the one hand and how they feel. And we have to address that in ways that don't necessarily get filtered through the criminal justice system, right? right? But on the other hand, proving this kind of, 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 um, of motive, which the Supreme Court says we can do. In fact, I wrote Supreme Court briefs on this exact topic. And what the mm -hmm. Supreme Court said is, if you're going to charge something as a hate crime where someone will have uh, the, the added penalty, even uh, it's got to be established beyond a reasonable doubt, not merely uh, with a lower standard. And that's what the Supreme Court, unfortunately or fortunately, has dictated. But it doesn't take away from our ability to reach out to these communities and say, we've got your back. And here are seven or eight things that we're going to do. And, and these kinds of killings have actually spurred legislation here in California, some of which I hope is done in New York State as well. College don't mean shit. Y'all niggas. And you're going to be niggas forever. Just like us. Niggas. You're not niggas. Good evening. Another Hewleton School's parent speaks out about racism. And in fact, he's familiar with some of the boys responsible for the racial slur incident that we reported on last week. Rudy Ford spoke with 7 News reporter Keith Benman and says he never thought he'd see something like this. Right here in his driveway, Rudy Ford has played hoops with some of the Hewleton students suspended for staging this last week a choreographed racist slur. We've blocked out three letters. They were happy, they joked around, they were very nice kids, well-mannered and their parents were very respectful when they came here to pick them up. Ford was shocked to learn some of the same boys that came to play basketball with his daughter Marva could do that, but maybe not so shocked given what he's heard from his daughter about others. And this year alone uh, she was called five times One, two, three, four, five. and in the history of her going to school she had never been called this it's, it's it's something new marva is an honor student loves sports taught to be tough but rudy said it's taking a toll she's afraid she doesn't want to go to school but she will go to school it's taking an emotional toll on parents too i never thought i would see this some of the boys have called marva to apologize it will take more ford is plain he can forgive not forget, but forgive. Right now, this is a community struggling to come to a consensus on what's right and wrong, on what's acceptable, and what's not. Many are telling me that's going to take some time. The school issued an update Friday on its response. It said steps will be taken, including training on race, gender, and equity. A group started where marginalized students can talk about their experience, and a working group formed to identify where change is needed. The update said the school has wrapped up its investigation of the incident. The school is cooperating with state police on their separate investigation. Keith Benman, 7 News.
Tonight, some families say they're on edge after a social media threat directed at black students at East Wake High School was found circulating online. And we're learning tomorrow there will be extra security on campus as a result. WRAL's Julian Grace joins us live at East Wake High in Wendell with the latest. Julian? Lena, this all started when students were scrolling social media and they saw the threat. They contacted teachers, teachers contacted the administration, and then the administration called police. And now tonight, parents have a letter in their inbox explaining everything that happened. This is the month that we celebrate black history, but someone wanted to use today as a day to harass African-American students at East Wake High School. It's sad that this person has to go to that level to, with no disregard for the students, for their safety. Here it is, typed out line by line on Snapchat. The writer uses the N-word twice and ends with, we will discuss how to get rid of all blacks at East Wake. I wasn't surprised. The Bible said there's nothing new under the sun. Same thing, different day. Yeah, Sky 5 in the air after the district called Wake County School Security in to investigate. Extra officers will be visible this week. And the principal sent this email to parents. It reads in part, quote, we take school threats of any kind very seriously. WCPSS security and law enforcement agencies investigate all threats and evaluate their validity. We also work with law enforcement and the courts to prosecute anyone, adult or student, responsible for making a threat. It doesn't have a color. Evil is just evil. Tonight, though, this grandmother whose grandson goes to East Wake is just glad that everyone is okay. I just pray, and I pray that he is covered and every child out here. And just last September, this exact same high school, East Wake, was locked down for over an hour after a threat was posted on Snapchat. That threat was not racially charged. Lena, I can tell you this as well, that the administration, they're asking parents and students to keep their eyes and ears open. And if they see or hear anything suspicious, to contact them immediately. Be vigilant, certainly. Julian Grace reporting live in Wendell. Thank you. I want to be a cop. An independent investigation into the Williamstown, Massachusetts Police Department details a long-standing culture of racial harassment and hostility. After an explosive lawsuit filed by former Williamstown Sergeant Scott McGowan in August 2020 brought allegations of misconduct within the department to light, municipal leaders commissioned two independent investigations into the situation. One was led by attorney Judy Levinson, who submitted her report to the town in August 2021. Since obtaining it in January, WAMC has continued to dig into the findings. While both investigations detail widespread misconduct, including sexual harassment and grievous management issues within the department, they also catalog claims of racism and racial hostility within the WPD. In McGowan's initial suit, since dropped, he claimed that, quote, for well over a decade, the Williamstown Police Department has maintained an atmosphere in which racial harassment and hostility to persons of color are tolerated and perpetrated at the highest level, end quote. He specifically identified, quote, the demeaning behavior of Chief Kyle Johnson, end quote, who resigned from the department in December 2020. Levinson's report ultimately found that both McGowan and Johnson had, quote, initiated, participated in, and tolerated racially charged and offensive comments and conduct within the department, end quote. One of the most stunning revelations of McGowan's suit was that WPD officer Craig Eichhammer had displayed a photo of Hitler in his locker for almost 20 years. 
While Levinson's investigation was inconclusive about Johnson's awareness of the photo, she says that given the small size of the department and how long it was up, quote, it seems improbable that Johnson would not have heard about it, and if he did hear about it, he failed to investigate or act otherwise, end quote. Johnson, who first joined the WPD in 1993 before becoming interim and later permanent chief in 2004, claimed to not have known about the portrait until 2019. The report describes Johnson pretending to be unable to distinguish the identities of persons of color, rubbing his eyes and looking back and forth between a black member of the WPD and persons of color either entering the station or appearing on television. He would then ask if the other person of color was the officer. While Levinson was inconclusive about the claim that Johnson would circle newspaper photos of persons of color, write a black officer's initials on the photos, and leave them in their mailbox, quote, the detailed nature of McGowan's account and Johnson's failure to deny or affirm the incident lend credence to these allegations, end quote. In both incidents, Johnson said he had no memory of the events in question. Levinson says that claims that the officer in question, who did not testify in the investigation, requested a transfer to a different department due to the racially hostile environment are credible, given her investigation's findings. Levinson confirms that a part-time dispatcher shouted the N-word in the department in 2012, which was overheard by both a black officer and black Williams College student touring the station. While Johnson removed them from assignment for two weeks after the officer reported the incident, the report notes that no written record of it was produced, and no follow-up training or education of the dispatcher appeared to occur. For McGowan's part, Levinson notes that despite his claim that he was offended by the image of Hitler, he did nothing to remove it despite being a supervising officer over the years, opting instead to photograph it for use in his lawsuit. The former sergeant was heard to use the N-word when referring to his black roommate, a fellow WPD officer, between 2002 and 2005. Levinson says that McGowan frequently commented that another WPD officer of Puerto Rican descent, quote, came over on a rubber tube, saw the Statue of Liberty, and said, I made it to America, end quote. The officer in question was born in New York City, and despite knowing that, McGowan continued the remarks, sometimes swapping in Mexico for Puerto Rico. McGowan denied making the remarks to Levinson. In a statement to WAMC about the investigations, interim WPD chief Michael Ziemba said that he immediately took action to address the concerns they raised upon receiving them, and that, quote, the current department today does not in any way operate the way it did during the time period of the events detailed in the reports, end quote. McGowan, who declined an on-air interview with WAMC, has provided his own statement about the investigations, saying that they are neither fair nor impartial. He maintains that he has been targeted for character assassination as a result of what he describes as whistleblowing activity. You can read the full report and additional WAMC coverage of the WPD investigations at WAMC.org. Reporting from the WAMC News Berkshire Bureau at the Beacon Cinema, I'm Josh Landis. There has been a haunting question hanging over Marksville for decades. Did Vincent Simmons get a fair trial in 1977 when he was convicted of a heinous crime against 14-year-old twin sisters? He raped two of us. And he put us in a trunk to die. He had me write our names down, and he told us he was going to kill us. And we believed every word of it. And we were not going to tell anyone. Our plan was we were going to die with this. 
But two weeks later, word got to the sheriff. And that is when Karen and Sharon Sanders reluctantly reported some details, claiming they were forcibly taken by a black man to a country road and sexually assaulted for three hours in a car that belonged to their 18-year-old cousin, Keith Laborde, while he was locked in the trunk. We called him Simmons all night. There's so many things about that night. He gave us his name. When you were questioned by the sheriff, yes, you never gave the name Simmons. No, we did not. You never described what he looked like. No, we did not. You said all blacks look alike. And you said all in words. That's right. Sure did. Welcome back to CBS Mornings. We have a big update today in the case of a man who has spent decades arguing his, he's been wrongly imprisoned. After more than 44 years, Vincent Simmons is now a free man. Yesterday, a judge ruled he had not received a fair trial back in 1977 when he was convicted of attempted aggravated rape. The decision is partly based on evidence that's been available for years. Our lead national correspondent, David Begno, recently sat down with Simmons' accusers, twins, who were 14 years old back in 1977. Now he has spoken to Simmons. And David joins us from Angola, Louisiana. David, good morning. What incredible reporting. Light, good morning to you. Hello, everyone. Listen, Vincent served 44 years here at Louisiana State Penitentiary, but he was supposed to serve 100. That was the sentence. For the last 30 or so years, he kept trying to tell judges, I didn't get a fair trial, and here's the information, and they just dismissed him left and right. Get out of here. Get out of here. But yesterday, there was a judge who said to him, I believe that you did not get a fair trial. In fact, that judge's daddy nearly 30 years ago dismissed Vincent's attempt. But this judge said, your rights were denied, they were violated, and you get a fair trial. And we were there for all of it. Vincent Simmons! Time to let him go, y'all! Vincent Simmons! When the shackled Vincent Simmons arrived at the Avoyles Parish Courthouse in a prison van, he was carrying a Bible. When his accusers, Karen and Sharon Sanders, the twins that he was convicted of sexually assaulting when they were 14 years old, walked to the courthouse, they paused to pray. Simmons had been in prison for 44 years and tried for most of that time to get his conviction overturned. You've done this 16 times at least. <laughs> yes. So this would be 17. Yes. You think this will be the time? Yes, sir. We walked alongside Simmons as he was about to face a judge who had recently examined information that was available in 1977, but it was not presented at his trial. That was information that he and his attorneys believed may have changed his conviction for attempted aggravated rape. It took less than an hour for Judge Billy Bennett to say that there had been a lapse in Louisiana justice in 1977. You free, bro. You free. You free. Done. And that Vincent Simmons deserves a new trial. And that is when the shackles came off of his feet. The district attorney said he will not retry Simmons. So happy to see you. His accusers, Sharon and Karen Sanders, now 59 years old, decided to stand down. He went in guilty. He's guilty now. And guess what? He will die guilty. You ready? So I'm Oh, yeah, I'm right. happy. Yeah. I got 44 years. All right. Let's go. What was that moment like for you when you realized that what the judge said meant you were a free man? Yeah. It dawned on me. This is it. You know? Man, you've been waiting all these years for this. 
You'll turn 70 on Thursday. On Thursday. Did you think you would die in prison? Yes. And I had visions of the prison gates opening up. And I'm walking through them. Are you mad at anyone? No, I'm not mad. So you're not mad at the women? No. I'm not mad at them. I mean that. When I told them I forgive them, that's what I mean. Forgiveness. The judge said several times on the bench, I do not know whether Mr. Simmons is innocent or guilty. Does it bother you that you walk out of here a free man, but with the suspicion by some people that you may still be guilty? Well, I still believe that even though I'm out, just like people, people going to be people. And some of them going to say, oh, he's guilty. You know, despite the fact that they had no evidence. But before he could be free, a remarkable thing happened. Louisiana prison officials required that the shackles go back on. So he could go back to prison to be processed. I'm just telling you, he's he's a free man. And though his lawyer pushed back. You can't be in jail tonight. Like that, that's not like a good, that would not be a good thing. The victory! He would load up again and travel another two hours back to Louisiana State Penitentiary, the largest maximum security prison in the nation, where at sunset, Vincent Simmons walked out of the place he has been held in since he was 25 years old. Hey, man. I want The judge said on the bench yesterday, I want to be clear, I'm not telling you that Vincent Simmons is guilty or innocent. I'm just telling you he deserves a new trial. When the district attorney stood up almost immediately and said, Judge, we're not going to retry him, that meant the charges at that moment were dropped. When Vincent walked out of here last night, he said he wanted a crawfish dinner. So he got it. What's next for him? He says he wants to leave Louisiana and start again somewhere else. Wow. Well, David, we can certainly understand that. Uh, congratulations to you and your team for a lot of hard work here. There were a lot of people involved working on this case for a lot of years to, to bring Vincent Simmons into the outside world as a free man. You mentioned he's free but not exonerated. So I do have a question. First of all, who met him there? He was hugging two uh, ladies and there were some cheers. I'm curious who was there. And also, is there any hope of restitution for the 44 years he paid for a crime he says he didn't commit? His sisters and his attorney met him here, and there is hope, but it's going to be hard. The DA said he would essentially have to go to what is a trial and convince a judge that he can prove his innocence. Proving that he's innocent may be difficult, but when you say that he had a lot of help, Tony, it's important to note, every attorney who helped him was simply using the information that Vincent had obtained himself. Nobody believed Vincent when he stood up in front of a judge by himself. But he kept trying and kept trying and was expecting to die here in prison. But instead, after 44 years, he won. And the tragedy is, David, there are so many more Vincent Simmons out there. David, we thank you so much for this incredible gift that you've given to um, the Simmons family and to CBS News. Yeah. Convicted rapist. Black male privilege. Black, black male privilege. I had a, uh, they should have the black male rapist of the day. They can call it the Emmett Till Award.
and just pick out Anthony Browder, Vincent Simmons, Central Park Five. That's kind of a whole week right there. Brownsville rape case from 2016. Let's go on and on and on and on. The black male rapist of the day. Scottsboro boy. I mean, long list. Long list. In honor of Emmett Till. Black male rapist of the day, Vincent Simmons. Gus T, the black O.J. Simpson. He should get a day in there, too. Context of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, February 19, 2022. So I have been told. Should have read Picking Cotton. I'd have been in a much better mood. I had the audacity. We finished Lucky, Alice Seabold, and I said, man, we should read Picking Cotton by the different Matthew Cotton, black male rapist of the day. We read Picking Cotton. I said, hey, he does write half of the book. So you get to hear what is it like to be locked up for all these years, sometimes decades, for raping a white woman or a pair of white women? What is that like? Just hanging out, sex offender, rapist. I'm going to die in prison and everyone thinks that I'm a rapist of the whole world. Well, they hated me anyway, but now they really hate me. You at least get to hear some of that. That was why I wanted to read Pickin' Cotton. But again, Gus T, a little bit retarded. I said, ah, heard so much about black rapists. We read about that for two months. Who wants to keep reading about black rapists? And then, whammo, they just keep on. If I had known there was going to just keep rolling them out, Vincent Simmons and all the rest of it, that might be the whole year, 2022, of Negro males who've been locked up 25 years, 30 years, 40 years, 44 years, 50 years, maybe find some that died in prison. We did a whole program. Timothy Cole, they didn't even exonerate him until after he died. Call it posthumously. Put a statue up and everything after he died. He spent, I think, 11 years in prison, and he did die in prison and he was a u.s veteran tim cole great state of texas they did put a statue up i said that they put a statue up tim cole that's even a little bit better than black male rapist of the day anywho few things to share before we get started number man whoo timing sparkle 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 so monday we should be here. We should have been here this previous Monday with Kyla Schuler, white woman, but she emailed and said that she was not feeling well. Teaspoon of gout or you pick the illness. And she needed to reschedule. So we shall see. I pitched her dates for March. We'll see. She might have just been practicing racism. White supremacy has happened a lot. People wasting Gusty's time and all the rest of it may have been the case but we were supposed to be here this past uh monday i was prepared to be here this past monday she emailed me uh like late saturday to say that she was you know the gout acting up anywho so for this coming monday we should have white man william cohen on the program uh he wrote the book the price of silence which is all about not the black male rapist but the duke lacrosse rape case the reason that this came up this case is mentioned in 
Aya Gruber's book about the role of white women in mass incarceration. Uh, but just this is such a, a well-known uh, incident, and we've talked about it before loosely. And, I said, man, we should, you know, chat about this case. And even better to get a white man uh, who wrote one of the definitive books about this here case. White men accused of raping a black female. We will chat it up on this coming Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific. Uh, if you watch the ESPN documentary or if you saw it on this case, um, his book is referenced there. They talk to a lot of people, but his book, The Price of Silence, is uh, they talk to the author, Mr. Cohen. If you want to check it out. Anywho, that is Monday. Uh, I'm not sure. We may be here tomorrow, may not have to see. Uh, it's the sur- third Sunday of the month. Uh, and that's normally when we do our global Sunday talk on racism. Uh, I sent out the invitation, let folks know, like we're doing the program. I uh, sent the email out on the 13th. See, that's uh, this past Sunday uh, for a program that was happening a week later. And as of Saturday this morning, and I mean, for folks who are in other parts of the world, like by the time for me, especially me on the West Coast Pacific time, by the time for me, it's like noon. It's like closing in on the end of Saturday, like darn near Sunday. So it was noon Pacific time for Gus T. And I had not received any responses except from one person. And that one person said that they couldn't tune in. So I said, well, it looks like we don't have any participants. I guess we won't be doing the program. So I emailed folks to let them know only after I sent that email out saying that the program was canceled, which was fine with Gus T. Because, hey, got the program on Monday. White person, white guests only. Gives me more time to prep. Excited to talk about the Duke lacrosse case. After I sent the email saying the program is canceled because nobody responded. It's been a week. Then people did respond and said that they were going to participate. Something about that is like incorrect at minimum. When I say time and energy, Gus T is real miserly about his time and energy. And I recommend that every victim of racism be miserly about your time and energy as well. That is one thing. No one racists, victims, no one has an infinite amount of time and you don't even know how much time you have nobody is guaranteed tomorrow race soldiers dylan roof all the rest of it or you could just be accused of being a rapist and have to chill out for the next 25 years so value your time to the utmost and i reference josh wicket regularly we will show up on time for white people they will penalize us right we're late for work or other appointments with white people. They can really make it ugly for us. Victims of racism. We don't have that type of power. So sometimes we'll be kind of wasteful with victims of racism's time and energy. That is a big no, no, especially if you are serious about attempting counter racism, the context of white supremacy, we start on time. Uh, you generally, unless it's been some sort of tech issue or what have you, I deliberately start like a minute after the hour deliberately it was even encoded in the start time for many many years but like we start on time you do not come to the cows and the program time list is 9 p.m eastern we are not generally starting at 9 10 9 15 908 that is not the cows value time and energy so i will have to see because i really 
I was, let's prep for Monday. Let's rock and roll. Shouldn't take a week to respond. Trying to use logic. Comments to share from the reports. Uh, let's see. They had the report on the folks that are doing, I guess, some sort of diving expedition to try to find out these uh, or this slave ship uh, and kind of an archaeological expedition beneath the sea uh, to kind of get this history and all the rest of it. Uh, and when they were doing the interview, NPR, all things considered, Michelle Martin doing the uh, question asking she said that she went to the African-American Museum of History, Washington, D.C. I had a slight pang. Uh, we were supposed to be there uh, the 2000, whatever year, 2020 Cal's Counter-Racist Yoga Retreat in Washington, D.C. We were supposed to be there. Had already contacted the folks, had the tickets all set up, and then whammo, COVID came in shut the joint down and that was that uh, we did go to DC and all but could not go to the museum uh, I have no idea we could have been inspired in the same manner like wow we should start a counter racist scuba diving club or who knows oh well one day COVID will be history I reckon uh, let's see next uh, they had they used the term enslaved in that segment Woo. Matter of fact, I'll just save that to like get my comments in about Vincent Simmons. Put a pin in that one. Uh, let's see. When they were talking with Sean Hayes, he was in the documentary or he is in the documentary. Brave Hawker uh, about falconry and this black male, Mr. Hayes, his experience of racism uh, in falconry. Uh, they said that some he has to be careful, which, hey, I agree. I understand, brother. He said he has to be careful because some of the places that he goes, I guess, to do your bird watching, falconry, all that entails. He's around individuals classified as white who have never seen a black person. That is victims guaranteed qualified. He can say what he wants, but that is like a cliche. People say that all the time as a really lame justification for white supremacy and mistreatment of non-white people that is extraordinarily lame because there are large sections of the population on the planet people that I've never met upon meeting some of these folks for the first time my instinct was not oh mistreat them they got to be hostile that was not my thought process that's not my thought process about any group of people that I meet that are strange, that I've never seen before, that I've only seen on television, it does not shift immediately into deceive and mistreat these people. I've never met them before. That is absolute lunacy. Follow logic, said that a few times. Uh, they continued uh, with the Sean Hayes segment. Did you hear they said when he go or when he was in school, he said he remembers the date, the time. I mean, we you talk about children being sensitive. I believe him when he said, I remember the date, time, like all of what they call photographic memory of that moment. Teacher doesn't like what you're interested in. What? Oh, no, 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 no. You should be. I know garbage. 
That's what you niggas are. Trash. Yes. Why don't you why don't you be a, a rubbish collector? They're not even gonna have them soon. So I mean, hey, your window is closing, Mr. Hayes, if you're gonna get into rubbish. But that I played, I know we probably got to, I hope we got some younger listeners, Bay Area Scholar and some other folks who were born like on this side of the two thousands, uh, and have perhaps never heard of Sanford and Son. But I mean, black people in rubbish heap. We can make whole television programs. Lots of them. Lots and lots of them are black people in garbage. Even Charlie Brown, if you want to go way back, the only nigger that they have on Charlie Brown was Pigpen. Trash. Same thing they said in Malcolm X, right? He wrote about that. Like, I want to be a lawyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, God. No, no, no. We wouldn't even hire you. We don't hire nigger attorneys. Hey, how about a carpenter they didn't even give him a noble profession like yeah jesus white jesus he was a carpenter you could make something tables right right no 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 trash man that's what you do garbage yes uh racism white supremacy messes up everything just want to get that in nothing is sacred he said he can't even go to the falconry events and what have you like that is why there should be a sense of urgency like everything becomes tainted with white supremacy racism all over the world sense of urgency ASAP Uh, they we heard the report from democracy now about Warlist Jackson and his assassination in Mississippi I think that is just a horrendous name American reckoning PBS does lots of documentaries and I mean they've been doing them for decades Uh, on white supremacy racism you couldn't come up with a better title than that the assassination of Warless Jackson how about that they keep saying say her name why not put and especially since it seems lots of us don't even know who Warless Jackson is I'd never heard of him before why not put him front and central as opposed to American reckoning what is that even relevant to Anywho, uh, my BFF, Amy Goodman, uh, within that segment, suspected racist, she interrupted the descendants, victims of racism, uh, descendants of Mr. Warlist Jackson repeatedly. And she was interrupting them to cut and go to this white man to talk about, oh, my gosh, where did you all get all of this archival footage and all the rest of it? I've seen her have lots of people on where she does not interrupt. She knows how to use her mute button, just like Gus T hush and let people say give their spiel this is his family you did your little tacky oh i just want to expend my condolences i know it's been more than a half century and then as soon as they get to talk oh yeah 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 okay yeah yeah. uh look here let's cut to this white man tell us about where you got the and she did it more than once uh in that segment talk i just comes to mind uh when whites interview black people and then they try and put on some performance as though they're not racist they care about black people or even that they're ignorant about racism white supremacy and the black person that they're interviewing is educating them through the course of this discussion that type of a thing wasn't even given a spectacular uh, effort at pretending Amy Goodman in the segment Uh, incidentally within that segment they talked about 
the black people who were protesting in Mississippi being sent to parchment, which is one of the worst areas to be caged. That could be another one right there. Enslaved. Are you serious? Just call us slaves. Make it, you know, make it plain. Uh, But she talked about the terrorism, the torture that they would have the black people in greater confinement, put them in an area with no toilet and give them laxatives. I said, hey, that's delectable Negro, right? Talked about that. Sometimes you gorge them on food or sometimes you don't give them any food. Sometimes you eat them, giving them laxatives and put them in an area with no toilet. Force feed them laxatives at that or we'll beat you to death. Wow. Racist man, racist woman. And and so are these white people ignorant about racism? The ones that are doing the force feeding of laxatives? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Uh, let's see. They did the segment talking about uh, President Biden uh, and they think he's going to select a black female to the Supreme Court. They think it's going to be Katanji Brown Jackson. One thing I think I, I can say definitively. It seems that the code is. If you are a black person. And you will be allowed, selected to have a job on the Supreme Court of the United States. If you are classified as black, your quote unquote spouse cannot also be classified as black. That must be the rule. Maybe they don't necessarily have to be white, although it seems maybe that helps, but they cannot be classified as black. That seems to be the code. I don't know why that is. Have to give that some time to ponder on. That was an audio segment from PBS where they were talking about her qualifications and all the rest of it. I thought it was important. They highlighted that her understanding of the disparities, they didn't say racism, inequity in the justice system is grounded in her life and family where one of her uncles is in prison for selling cocaine, crack cocaine, they said specifically. Uh, hmm. Yes. Yes, of course. Those no-count black males, when they're not raping of course, they're peddling narcotics. Yes, yes. No count. She knows about the no count blackmail. That's why she didn't marry one. Yes, yes, yes. The no count blackmail. Uh, but they're given her qualifications, including her locked up uncle, who I guess will not be, you know, released or pardoned. Uh, she said that. Uh, they went through all of this. I didn't have a visual. Right. This is on PBS. So I'm just listening. And I hadn't seen her husband. I didn't know anything about Patrick Jackson. Hadn't, I don't think I'd even heard his name before. If I would walked past him on the street, would have never known. Uh, but when she said we were an unlikely pair, she said, I'm only the second generation in my family to go to college. System of white supremacy. They didn't allow niggers to go to school. He and his brother, I think twin brother, are sixth generation. I said, you can stop right there. This is a white person. Like sixth generation black person at Harvard? <laughs> Uh, They were about to uh, lynch Skip Lewis Gates trying to break into his own house. Sixth generation. Ah, That's cowbell, too. Ah. 
I can't even think of another non-white group. Sixth generation? Nah. Definitely classified as white. I did confirm uh, since it was, you know, audio. I did. It, yes. Looks like he'd be classified as white. Anybody can let me know if Mr. Jackson, if you think he is not classified as white, set Gus T straight. Thank you kindly. Uh, let's see. Wow. When they talked about the Tesla factory in California, I said, wow, I don't know if my man Elon Musk suspected race soldier. If he heard all this, that'd be enough to make me leave. I'm going back to Mars. Have you all sit down here and besmirch my name, my business, calling us racist and all the rest of it. I'm out of here. Let's get the rocket. They said in the clip, neutralizing workplace racism every Friday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. We start that one on time as well. They said at the Tesla factory in California in Fremont. I've been to Fremont like, oh, my goodness. Bay Area. They said at the Fremont factory that the copious use of racist terms. Saying Negro willy nilly in Fremont. They said that they would make the niggers scrub the floor and no one else. Call that spade work. The niggers didn't get any promotions. And were generally treated unfair. Hmm. Felt like I might have heard some of that before. Uh, one thing that I would say, ooh, we take notes. They continued. They talked to Owen Diaz, and he said they drew pickaninnies. We talked about that one because I said, "What in the world? <laughs> I want to say." what do oh and someone sent it to me man i'm still learning because i said i don't even know what that is like if someone had done that to me in a job setting i would be totally clueless i would need somebody like remedial i need the remedial racism uh notes can i get the hookup because i don't even know what the picking in illustration is <laughs> like real talk like if people know what that is uh you could hook me up let me know that'll be you know a little bit quicker uh if i should see it uh but mr diaz he said oh yeah they drawing pickaninnies and talking about this place as a plantation and a slave ship which is totally accurate if you're going to use metaphors make sure they're accurate yes indeed i say plantation all the time neutralizing workplace racism because that's where we are i don't even see seattle as the best city i say plantation because that's where we are you got slaves on the plantation i am one unfortunately trying to correct that problem as soon as possible but one thing they said they said hey we don't know what happened we're trying to investigate find the truth one thing that would tend to be in the favor of the accusers they said was the fact that it seemed that they took detailed notes and they said that the accusers weren't refuting. Hmm. Important. I think, in fact, that even went with the other one. Keep that in mind, because that is something we talk about neutralizing workplace racism. But I get to say it twice because that's important. They said that they thought they were attempting to sweep all this under the table. Metaphor. I think it'd be better to just say obfuscate or even deceive i understand obfuscate is kind of one of those hey nigger you're trying to show down and all that obfuscate is much better deceive 
about the fact that racism, white supremacy was practiced as opposed to sweeping under the rug. Want to get away from those metaphors as much as we can to be specific. Because I mean, hey, if it's if they're lying, I would much rather have that. Hey, it could be the deception is being practiced here as opposed to we're sweeping things under the rug. Next, they said, and even with Tesla, they said, man, it's it's terrible what's happening. They're being accused of all this nonsense, all the work that they've done for sustainability and green energy. Got our priorities here. Ending racism is way low on the list. Recycling and all that is like top priority. Uh, Let's see. When they had the segment on the racist developers. This one I thought was important. I did take quite a few notes here. Let's see if I can get all of my notes together for this year's segment. Okay. So they had Angel Bush on, black female, victim of white supremacy. This was on NPR. She is the founder of Black Women in AI and their stated goal, the empowerment for black women in the field of AI. Grand, spectacular, need more of that. That is one of those where I've said consistently, dang, it couldn't just be for black people in general. Black males got to be totally excluded. Again, I know we rape everybody. I know old Anthony Broadwater and Vincent Simmons just rape everybody and sell crack, rape and crack. That's all we do, rape and crack, sometimes all together. But they couldn't, you couldn't try and get some of them to put the crack down and not rape for like long enough to be in the AI program. It couldn't be one for black males too. No, that yeah okay. So they they have her on, and she proceeds to talk because they before I I pointed it out they were talking about this and they said that there were problems with facial recognition for black women. That's what they said. They didn't say black females. And I said, dang, does the facial recognition work beautifully for black males? Excluded again there too. I'm just pointing out the consistency with the black misandry and how it's reported. So today they have Angel Bush on founder of black women in AI to talk about the problems with facial recognition. And the first report that she references, she said it was a dad in Michigan who was arrested in front of his family. Now, once again, the same way that I pointed out when we read the second worst book ever, Isabel Wilkerson cased where she would consistently race uh, reference the case of black males like Botham Jean who were killed by enforcement officers like uh, Thabo Cephalosha he wasn't killed but he was a victim she would reference their cases but she wouldn't name these black males I said dang didn't we have to hear for a long time say her name like these accusations that everybody especially toxic patriarchal black males don't care about black females. So we got to make sure we're saying the black females names. I got no problem with that. Identify. Absolutely. That's a big part of how racism works. Not identifying victims of racism. But dang, like, are we not going to do this? Apply this for black males? Like we just consistently don't name them. That even came up with Aya Gruber, where she said, dang, they talk about poor old Anthony Broadwater's case, but they don't even name him. They just talk about Alice Siebold. They go into the report on the facial recognition doesn't work and they reference the case. They don't reference who is it that this guy who got arrested in front of his family. Oh, this was Robert Julian Borchak 
Williams. Now I know that's a long name. It couldn't be something easy like Ron Smith. Gus T, I got no staff, no fans, no budget, and I could find the report and get this person's name. You got a budget. NPR got a staff. You couldn't get the one black person's name, black male's name, since you're going to mention the report. NPR did a whole section on this. Oh, by the way, his name is Let's get some of the details. So what happened to Mr. Robert Julian Borchak Williams? Investigators pulled a security video that had recorded the incident, uh, alleged theft from a store of about $3,000 worth of merchandise. Detectives zoomed in on the grainy footage and ran the person who appeared to be the suspect through a facial recognition software. A hit came back. Robert Julian Borchak Williams, 42 of Farmington Hills, Michigan, about 25 miles northwest of Detroit. In January, police pulled up to Williams home and arrested him while he stood on his front lawn in front of his wife and two daughters, ages two and five, who cried as they watched their privileged black male father being placed in the patrol car. His wife, Melissa Williams, wanted to know where police were taking her husband. Google it. She recalls an officer telling her, I'll stop there. He was probably going to rape someone, so it's probably for the best that they got him anyway. But dang, you can't even name the victim? We get to this. And then within all of that, all of this is chalked up to, oh, it's implicit bias. In fact, they came in the report, they said the problem was lack of diversity in AI. We just heard about Tesla. Does that sound like oh man, this is just, you know implicit bias, you know they just, they're not aware, they just need a little bit of trend. does it really? That's what I'm making the black people scrub the floor? Negra this and negra that plantation? That's implicit. They just don't hmm righty victims guaranteed qualified uh, they gave the report on doctors. In fact, oh, I'm so glad they were given the report on doctors and the importance addressing cancer disparities. They talked about that for years uh, in terms of black females. They will be white women will be more likely to catch cancer. But if black females are diagnosed with cancer, they are much more likely to die. And I think a lot of that is racism, white supremacy from a lot of different levels. Talked about all that before. Uh, when they talked about that report and they talked about one of the initiatives in Georgia, get more doctors. Bravo. Emmy, I sent her that report. Get more black doctors, medical professionals. That is what we need. White people are going to continue to practice racism, white supremacy. And I suspect some of the white people who practice in the medical profession are probably some of the, I mean, <laughs> J. Marion Sims. Medical apartheid. Now, uh, when they were talking about the numbers of black physicians, one I thought was important. Let's see. We'll give a little bit of uh, the history. Uh, in 1990, when 11.6% of the nation's population was black, probably an undercount, 1.3% of physicians were black. In 1940, when 9.7% of the total population was black, 2.8% of physicians were black. 2.7% of were black men and 0.1% were black women. By 2018, when 12.8% of the total population was black, 5.4% of U.S. physicians were black. 
2.6% black men and 2.8% black women. Although the percentage of black women physicians increased 2.7 percentage points between 1940 and 2018, the proportion of physicians who are black men during the same period has remained essentially unchanged. All of these numbers are too low. I think third generation physician Dr. Francis Cress Wellson would agree. But wow. That right there, in my opinion, like you can be that strategic because they could have made it look the exact opposite way if they wanted it. They could have made it where we allow a 3% increase of Negro males and a 0.1% increase in Negro females. They could have done it that way. We'll do it the other way. All of it is in error. Just again, the privileged black male. That's what they tell me, right? Old Anthony Broadwater. Anyway, let's see. Vincent Simmons. Other things I could share. Vincent Simmons. Um, oh, the hate, I have to say something about the hate crimes later. Uh, there is a documentary, Shadow of a Doubt. Oh, my God, the police reporter. There's a documentary, Shadow of a Doubt, uh, on Vincent Simmons. You should definitely check it out. It's kind of lengthy. It was done in the, like the 90s so he, he spent an additional like 25 years in greater confinement from the time that this documentary came out like laugh to keep from crying type of a thing is that pitiful uh, but I saw at the beginning of the week black male rapist of the day I saw Mr. Simmons exonerated 44 years like oh okay right on I started looking I not, didn't know a whole lot about this case. I hadn't seen the documentary before. So I'm going back doing the research. They had a segment mm, a few days before uh, he was released, not exonerated, released. And they had the white women twins on. And I played the little segment at the beginning there. And they were talking to them doing the interview from CBS. And so they asked them, they say, you know, hey, so you told the police officer that all black people look alike. I said, yep, mm -hmm, yep, yep, yep. He says, so, and then you, you also told the police that all Negroes look alike. Now, before they could respond in my head, I said, ah, oh, nah, they're going to say, wait, wait a minute. We did not say that. You're going to sit up here and just try and make it seem like every white person is a racist and all the rest of it. Like, in fact, I'm done with this interview. We went in and we told them, like, that's what I'm expecting, like righteous indignation. Like, come on. We did not tell the police that all that come on, like, what the f <laughs> that's not what happened. I said, I was wrong. They said, yep, that's what we said. Mm -hmm. Yep, all niggas look like. Mm -hmm. 44 years later. Now I'm not going to say that this nigger isn't a rapist. But he didn't get a fair trial. He may very well be a rapist. Ah, but he didn't get a fair trial. 70 years old. <laughs> he was incarcerated at 25.
five. Now it's 2022. And, and, and they say, whoa, 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 whoa. Could be probably raping Negra. Don't think you're just going to waltz out of this here courtroom to get back to your raping ways. Put the shackles back on him. That's, that's what I mean. Don't you run around here being slick, calling me enslaved because white people are on that now, right? If it's 2022 and all niggers look alike, because that's exactly what they said in Anthony Broadwater's case that we just read. That's exactly, exactly what they said. Did the Lana, these two niggers, they look alike. They're dead ringers. They look exactly alike. Yep, 16 years later. That's exactly what they said in the Anthony Broadwater case, even after the exoneration that, hey, niggers look alike. What can you do? Black male privilege. He was in prison so long Mr. Simmons they said and they didn't even get any new evidence all the evidence that they used to exonerate him they said was available 45 years ago when all niggers look alike they said he was in confinement so long the white judge who convicted him convicted rapist Willie Horton Bill Cosby Emmett Till He was in greater confinement so long. This white man's offspring graduates, goes to college, finishes law school, becomes an attorney, works as a lawyer, becomes a judge. Now I'm hearing the case that my dad presided over and it looks like. My dad didn't quite treat this nigger fairly. Hmm. Well, I'm not going to say that you didn't rape anybody, but dad should have done better. And we're not going to let you go. Put the shackles back on him. We got to drive him back to parchment. Oh, wait a minute. This is Louisiana. Angola. I got my institutions of confinement confused. We had parchment at the beginning. That was with the Worlist. Jackson, Mississippi, now Louisiana, Angola. You can ride two hours back shackled and we'll call you enslaved. And then maybe you'll get to go today, raping Negra. At 70, (laughs) really, is he, he is that much of a threat to the state of Louisiana at 70. Him and Ray Nagin, like, woo-wee, they are going to go out for raping and gravel-stealing capers. System of white supremacy racism. Black misandry. Anywho, I got to say something about the police report. We'll get to that later. The number is two, excuse me, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Number again, 
seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh, if we have any folks neutralizing workplace racism is technically friday but that is always permissible if we have any folks who have any uh suggestions tips that they would offer uh, for a victim of white supremacy who is having experiencing a lot of mistreatment in the workplace. Uh, lots of white males who do a lot of soliciting for let's go out and drink. Let's go out and get drunk or, you know, you're down for some swirling cowbell type of a thing. Uh, and then, oh, you don't want to hang out with her. You don't want to do the holiday parties and being resentful retaliation type of a thing. Uh, lots of surveillance, keeping an eye on where this person is coming and going and that type of a thing. Uh, to, you know, get your work done faster. You know, chop, chop, hurry it up. Uh, any suggestions for someone who is feeling a bit aggravated, uh, frustrated in that sort of environment? Just uh, things that would help them uh, try to minimize some of their frustration as they figure out an exit strategy uh, for dealing with this uh, kind of workplace stress. If you have any tips for the uh, this uh, black female victim of racism that would be helpful as well uh, if you could take about five minutes to share your thoughts that would be great uh, if you know you're in a noisy environment uh, if you can use your mute button get to a quieter area and then you can uh, unmute yourself that would be great take five and then if you need additional time make sure everyone has had at least one chance to speak and then you can give us your additional thoughts uh, for this one broadcast I do request if we cannot use metaphors uh, we had a lot of them this week, as we do every week. Uh, whistleblower, uh, sweep it under the rug, uh, character assassination. Heard that one before this year. Uh, work uh, counter racism uh, is about working to be precise, specific with our word choice. Uh, race soldiers, that is a key part element of deception. Analogies, metaphors that obfuscate. Victims of white supremacy, Gus T included, we've been subjected to this sort of misconduct, misuse of words for a long time. And then many of us are still learning. So sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our thoughts. Uh, if we, to the best of our ability, uh, can be precise, exact with our words. Uh, if you need more time to kind of compile your thoughts. That is always encouraged. Never a problem. I will prompt about the metaphors much obliged uh let's see number again seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred the code five six four nine four three pound press star six one if you would like to participate uh let's see folks who dialed in with a hand up uh, if you have commentary to share line should be open proceed let's see Hey everybody, I was listening to the reports, thanks for those, um, Gus, and for the lady or whoever needed that work advice when it's a drinking and they always want you to go out and have a drink with them, but when you're dealing with white people, they like for to hear like some type of sob story or something traumatic happening to black people and I know you, you might be against lying or whatever but 
I found when I what I told tell them that my job and they don't even ask me anymore. I told them years ago, you know, my family has um a history of having problems with alcohol. So I tend to stay away from all functions that got any type of alcohol just to remove myself from it. It's not true, but they never mess with me again. Another one, what my friend um, has done, um, she'll tell them that, you know, all of that drinking and hanging out after work is not in tune with her religion. Um, uh, she's. I was like, well, what do you do when they ask you what religion? I guess they never asked her. She never had to go into it, but they seem to accept that one as well. Um, a lot of times at these jobs, it's like these people expect us to, you know, go places with them off of work hours. And it's like, I don't want to be around you. I'm around you at work and that's enough. So that might be something. And just a few notes here that I took about the wind energy report. Um, that's one where I, I just don't think that these people are like the smartest people on the planet because the things that they do, you're complaining about wind energy, which is a renewable source of energy. You complain about, you know, climate with the global warming, yet you continue on with the plastics and the pollution. So it's just a part of them with the destruction the history of the destructive behavior. And then um, with the birds, the gentleman, the falconator, that was real interesting. And at the beginning of the that clip, you said that the birds of prey need to be taught to hunt. It's like, I guess, the birds come to the humans, and the humans think they're teaching these birds of prey. They're born birds of prey, so you teaching them anything about praying, I just don't believe that. They already, it's already imprinted in them to go out and hunt and pray. So, but I just thought that was interesting. And the gentleman also said, you know, when I go places that are outside of the United States, you know, it's not so bad. And we hear that a lot. And I don't want any victim on this line thinking that you can go somewhere in Europe or you can go somewhere in Central America and it's not going to affect you um, because it is. And Miss, uh, Mr. or Mrs., I don't know if that was a man or a woman, Wallace War- Jackson, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, I read about that while you were talking about it, while they were talking about it on the clip. And, you know, that um, the wife of Warless Jackson, so, okay, that would be a, a man. The wife of Warless Jackson asked him not to take that job because his friend had got a promotion not too long before that, and they blew him up, too. So, yeah, this just is terrorism. It's all terrorism. And, um... The Supreme Court last name Jackson and then Warless last name Jackson, popular, um, you know, slave name. And, uh, yeah, I got a couple other things here. I don't want to go over just the last one, Tesla, you know, the work environment with the car factories and the history of it. But the she not only said it was a history of racism, it was also a history of, of sexism. So 
you just like uh, Miss uh, Doctor Francis Cress Wilson used to say, racism it can never stand alone. They always have to mix it with something. All right, if I have some more time later, I don't know if I went past minutes, but thank you. Much obliged uh, for your observations, ma'am. Uh, the what was it the oh Mr. Hayes that was the black male in the documentary uh, Brave Hawker is the name of the documentary that he's in um, in terms of them having to teach these birds of prey uh, how to hunt uh, I think or at least this is just my theory I'm not into you know going out and doing all that with nature even though I'm in a wonderful environment to do so uh, but I think race soldiers they do so much to disrupt the environment like what you were talking about, like they got plastic everywhere and fake this and dump, you know, oil all in the water and pesticides everywhere and DDT and Agent Orange and all the rest of it. Uh, and then, you know, then want to act like they go, oh, we're going to help the little falcons and oh, nurse them back to like, how about just stop poisoning everything? And I'm sure they would be fine. That's one. And then two, because they do all that polluting everything that has an impact on all of us. They talked about how, you know, so many black people are impacted uh, at COVID-19 and all the rest of it uh, from the pollution, how they put lead and Flint and all that Newark, all these other areas, Benton Harbor with lead in the water and in all the air pollution and everything else that has an impact on the animals too. So it totally wouldn't surprise me if some of them, you know, have forgotten or got brain damage or whatever. So now they don't even remember how to hunt correctly or carry on some of their other features because they've been so disrupted by everything that's, that's happening. That totally would not surprise me at all. Um, let's see the end as well. The, cause he was talking about going to like other environments, uh, in terms of leaving the U S and things being better, like we just had the report last week where they were talking about uh, black people going to Brazil and experiencing all kinds of white supremacy racism and thinking that they had gotten away from it. Uh, black people going to all other parts of the world. Global Sunday talks. Why well, I always think so important to have that uh, black people in, you know, any part of the world that you can think of where they're still experiencing these same sorts of problems. There is no place to run. Unfortunately, again, sense of urgency to solving this problem uh, let's see incidentally two things I'll say really quick and then we'll see if folks have other comments they want to make sure they get in the uh, one they talked about the report on hate crimes the alleged increase in New York I highlighted this article I shared it put it on social media have it saved so that I can easily find it and reference it. This report just came out a few months back, uh, August of 2021. The 2020 data submitted to the FBI by more than 1500 law enforcement agencies across the country identified 7,759 hate crimes in 2020, a 6% increase over 2019 and the highest tally since 2008. The FBI data showed the number of offenses targeting blacks rose to 2,755 from 1,930 and incidents against Asians jumped 
to 274 from 158. All of these numbers should be zero. But I just, when I posted this, I just put those together. So the reported hate crimes against black people, 2,755. Reported hate crimes against so-called Asians, 274. All of those numbers should be zero. Again, man, if we're going to talk about terrorism and, and, and not just thousands targeting black people and Aya Gruber, she just said the people disproportionately charged with these hate crimes are non-white people and specifically black males which happened to be what they were talking about in the WNYC report. Barry, or make sure I get the name correct, uh, Mr. Levin, Brian Levin, I was going to say Barry, Brian Levin, suspected racist, uh, and talking about these uh, crimes that, oh, incidentally, within that report, whoa, it was so, and he kept saying, bear with me, bear with me. I'm like, hmm, hmm, interesting, suspected racist activity. He mentioned Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Jr., Two of the uh, killers of James Byrd Jr. were executed. So I don't know if you need a hate crime prosecution if you're going to execute folks. So I don't want to say overkill. That's kind of a metaphor. But I mean, hey, pun intended. We had Dick Gregory on the program to talk about that. He said he went down to Jasper, Texas to protest against executing uh, these two white men. That notwithstanding, June 2011. That notwithstanding. They mentioned Matthew Shepard, white man, where they say he was killed, allegedly the so-called hate crime because he was gay. 13 years of the cows. One of the programs that we did, Stephen Jimenez, the book of Matt. This is from 2016, summer of 2016. Again, reading more important than watching television. The premise of his book is that through a lot of research, Matthew Shepard was not the victim of a hate crime. And they said, like, well, wait a minute. It's called the Matthew Shepard. And then they put the nigger at the end. James Byrd Jr. Hate crime bill. Again, the book of Matt. The thesis is this was not a hate crime. This had nothing to do with someone being classified as gay or LGBTQ. I flipped. You can go back in the archives because I did post that uh, program today, but I just I opened the book up randomly. I was going to look for a highlight, but I just opened the book up randomly. Chapter six, life training, the highlight, the only highlight I have on this page reads. Despite his fear, the official, this is a police officer, stated unflinchingly. Matthew Shepard's murder had nothing to do with his sexual preferences. End quote. An assertion I would come to hear often during interviews. And he does say that many, many times. You can go back and hear that interview. Yep. Not defended like no ambiguity. And in fact, what does he say? It looks like instead of those old raping crack peddling 
black males, it looks like this might be some old drug peddling white people and some sort of drug transaction that went bad. But I guess if you got an objective, you don't want to have it just be the James Byrd Jr. Hate crime bill. We don't want that. Like all this attention on this no count nigger. Like, are you serious? I don't care what they drug behind the truck. Like, no, 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 no. We'll just get. Yes. Matthew Shepard. That was a hate crime. And that's that. The Matthew Shepard. James Virginia hate crime bill. Incidentally, the other uh, comment thing, we'll see if other folks have anything they would like to share uh, from the Super Bowl. They had Snoop Dogg, Dr. Trey, Kendrick Lamar, 50 Cent, Mary J. Blige, and Eminem. I don't know if he's honorary black for the day, still suspected racist. Uh, in Gus T's opinion, view, they did the performance. Folks were talking about it was great, supposedly against racism, even racial showcasing. Uh, since the NFL has all these accusations of white supremacy and uh, not hiring black head coaches. We can't hire head coaches, but you all can come out and do some entertaining and folly. Snoop Dogg announced victim of white supremacy. He announced that he was purchasing death row records uh, prior or a few days before the Super Bowl. And then during the performance, he has on his huge gold medallion with the death row records logo. We did read Labyrinth in the book club just a few months back. Hadn't seen the Death Row Records logo in some time. Tupac Shakur and all those days long gone. But the logo is a black male in the electric chair. Young Black, I was thinking of Dr. Tommy Curtin, uh, Dr. Tommy J. Curry's uh, cover, uh, the young black male that they have in the electric chair at 14 years of age his last name starts with an s uh stymie i'll look it up once i get a second but yeah (laughs) um that for black history month no less at the super bowl zenith to have snoop dogg there and to have a black male in the electric chair at the 50-yard line for the Super Bowl in Black History Month. Dr. Welsing, Grand Sester, I think A-pluses again. And, and if someone brought it up, like, what, do you think we told Snoop to wear that? Like, really? <laughs> like, anyway, NBC, NFL, commercial, we told him to wear that, really. We went, this is what you need to wear, Snoop, Really? Directly, indirectly, the folks most to blame classified as white. But yeah, I did note that like, wow, race soldiers, they A pluses, A pluses. Uh, Other folks have commented that they wanted to make sure they share. Let's see. Folks with a hand up, proceed. Can I jump in here? Yes, sir. Uh, I guess got good news for you. Uh, On the clip side, man, I got about another eight, nine days off. So uh, I'm looking into those clips that we talked about with um, the people talking about what date it is. And uh, if you have any suggestions on searches, I'm going to be using a mixture of Google dork and some of the stuff YouTube offers for search. But if you have any suggestions on things, keywords to use to look up to find clips and all that, that'd be excellent. 
uh, if you could, if you have them, post them to your Twitter search terms that you think would return anything of value. Uh, uh, let's get that knocked out. But uh, a comment on the um, machine learning AI side of uh, what we talked about with black women and uh, photo and images and all that. Part of which you'll find out with those like initiatives they call them in the industry for like diversity. Um, a lot of that stuff is just to really give white women more access to uh, higher positions in these like newer sectors of uh, technology. Because when you look at like the data, not that many black women are really getting degrees in like computer science. So it's a very extremely small group. I'm not saying that black females aren't capable, but the pool of individuals that you can actually find who are in the computer science field is excessively small. So when you start talking about a specialty field, which is what AI and machine learning is, you hear a lot about it because people are trying to turn a profit off it and really are just trying to cash in while, while something's a hot you know, term. But the specialty that you have to have is heavily in math. Um, you do have to have a level of engineering capability too because you're working with formulas right? There's actually a part of it that's called a bias, right? A bias function. And you have to understand like what different functions perform and outcomes that they'll produce. So what I'm getting at is it's a lot of math. It's heavily, heavily math. And those are one of the areas that you tend not to see in terms of, at least from the data I've seen when black women get degrees, they tend not to go those stem-filled routes that have heavy math. So it's I've seen a lot of the industry try those little tricks where they'll do these initiatives just for black women, knowing that you're probably not going to find too many black women in general for the programming side, but particularly a specific niche like AI. I think it's good, right? But it's also something that's more, uh, in my personal view, a, a cover for them. Um, you'll see a lot of white women actually running those programs, and then they start handing out jobs to, I mean, if you, Consider it black, you'll see generally like biracial females or, again, East Indian females. So you'll be looking and you're like, that, that female black? And then you look at their name and it's some East Indian female. So take that how you will. Uh, I believe it was Google had a uh, black female who's non-American. I think she's like Ethiopian or Somalian or something like that, East African or some variety. And... They had uh, her start uh, their data ethics and AI or AI ethics or something like that. Um, she was heading it up, or she was a big to-do there. And then one day they just fired her ass. Like <laughs> They didn't give her any warning at all. She tried to log in, and they were like, no, con no way is that going down. And so people started asking, like, why did you let her go? Because she had made quite a few you know, advances in you know, figuring out how to make AI a little bit more, I guess, if you want to say equal. I, I can't really understand how you quantify equal in terms of AI, but that's the terminology they tend to use, I owe equality and inclusion. But she was making, I guess, progress in showing how to make AI equal. And so I guess Google decided with the powers that they have to just let her go. They said supposedly it's because she either logged in from a non-Google computer and accessed her emails 
as you talk about emails, I guess it was something with the email that she did. I don't recount it was something like, you know, espionage. You know what I'm saying? It was simply she sent an email from either her work computer to a non-work computer or she logged in from a non-work computer to her email, and Google said, cool, we'll let your ass go. And they did. Companies talked about pushing back against it, but, you know, that's more to save face. So when you hear about these things in the tech sector, about them trying to find black women to hire and let's create more opportunities for black women, it's really just a front for them to, you know, hire more white women or non-black women and then parade it around as if they're trying to uh, create equality while the technology is still just as racist because the people who are making it are racist. Okay. But Elon Musk, he's in the AI. He has a company called OpenAI. Take with it what you will. You got to remember his family's from South Africa. So he's, he's one of the apartheid type white folks. Uh, there's an interview he did with a guy, Marquise Brownlee. He's a Southern African. I cannot remember what country in Africa, but he's Southern African. And nonetheless, in the interview, you could tell Elon Musk was very, very nervous about being interviewed by this dude because if you understand with uh, the Afrikaners, and I believe they're called the Boers down there in southern Africa, and particularly South Africa, but they are dominant in that southern tip of Africa. The stuff that they were doing to the tribes down there, you'd understand why he's so uh, nervous about doing that interview with the guy. He actually did it at one of the plants, and he was taking the guy around showing him the plant. And uh, nonetheless, if you get to see the interview, I believe it's still up on the guy's page. So I'm not surprised to hear of all the racism, the overt, in-your-face, South African-style racism that's being practiced at those plants. And with that, I'll mute my microphone. Much obliged, sir. Uh, we had two of them uh, in the news segments today, although these were like uh, current segments where the folks are saying, it is 2021. And to have people walking around and saying it was uh, twice, uh, I was chuckling both times uh, in terms of the older ones now. Oof, that would I would have to invest some uh, brain time to process to see uh, the best way of tracking down. But, I mean, it's racks and racks and racks. It would just depend how much time, if some folks out have extra time to try to, you know, track down the many, many clips and, you know, to really go back. Like I said, 60s, 70s, 80s, like it is. Lots and lots of them. People have been saying it for a long, long time. Uh, Timnit Gebru uh, is the name of the black female uh, who was fired from Google, who worked in their AI department. Uh, she was supposed to be in charge of their uh, ethics division and had talked about racism as a problem there. Uh, we actually talked about uh, that whole situation on neutralizing workplace racism at the end of 2020 uh, when all of that was uh, a big deal and what's happening uh, fresh uh, should be in the archives. I think even a part of that was she had written a paper talking about racism, white supremacy in the field and even critical of uh, Google's efforts in this area. And then they didn't publish the paper. And we talked about how they'll do that sometime, sometimes with uh, intellectual property uh, where you write something or come up with an idea, what have you. They'll take it. No intention of publishing it, putting it out. Sometimes they'll just destroy it. Other times they'll take it and then take credit from it. Uh, in this case, they took it, didn't publish it, and then they fired her. Um, but, yeah, standard operating uh, procedure, um, neutralizing workplace racism. Fridays, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. They did say that uh, with regards to the police incident. 
uh, where they said the sergeant had the photograph of Adolf Hitler in his locker for 20 years and nobody said anything about it and they said it's not even believable to think that nobody knew about this or thought that this is incorrect or you know let's maybe we're not even going to discipline him just let him hey you can't have Adolf Hitler's photograph in your police locker at the headquarters no then they added to it and said oh my goodness the uh, that the white fella will come in look at a black person and then look at a different black person on television or the news or whatever and rub his eyes like what twins what is that all negroes look alike said he would do that and then if he saw a newspaper or a magazine and a picture of a black person he would get the initials of a black co-worker fellow police officer draw an arrow put their initials next to the black person in the picture as though like oh hey there you are again look at that and then stick it in the mailboxes in addition to nigger this and nigger that and all the rest of it they said hey we don't know what happened because we weren't there we're trying to investigate and find the truth they said man they got such detailed reports about you know them coming and rubbing their eyes and looking back and forth and all the rest and the initials on the thing and put it they got such detailed reports like dang it's hard to think somebody would fabricate all of that and then they said the officers didn't deny that this stuff happened they said that would tend to suggest that maybe they are telling the truth that they were all you niggers look alike nigra neutralizing workplace racism 8 p.m. eastern 5 p.m. Pacific every Friday. Uh, let's see. Any other folks commentary that they need to make sure they get in before we wrap things up? Yeah, we heard. Caller in Florida. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, I was thinking about that part as well, uh, where they asked the white woman. And what I noticed is that like, I could barely hear the, the person that was asking the question. Like, I don't know if he was trying to whisper or something. He said, uh, I don't know if he said, so you, he said, I guess he asked her, you said that all black people look alike or something. And she was just, just fine with saying, yeah, you know, that's, that's what I said, I guess, paraphrase. And then I guess that's when the uh, the word nigger or nigger was used or slur or something. And he he seemed to be talking really low. Like, I don't, I don't know if that was, um, was that someone classified as white or, or what? I noticed that. Um, there was another part where when I guess they were talking about the birds, the falcon, uh, falconry, and the person in the segment when it came to talking about racism and his experiences, uh, I think the term was used, um, he wrestled, I think he used the word wrestle with racism. And I'm thinking that in my mind, what are you talking about? Like, you know, you in competition, like you physically grappling somebody, you know, or, or what? Like it's racism is able to be practiced by 
a black person and a white person. Like, that's how I received that. But he was being victimized by uh, a racist, you know, white supremacist. Um, and uh, my last one was uh, where I think it was the, se- the segment about the hate crimes and how the guy, I did pick up on that as well about the bear with me, bear with me. You know, I'm about to say something extravagant or something, um, you know, and I understand that other non-white people are being mistreated. But I thought about the comparison aspect, like they don't have any kind of comparison with, you know, with how often it's reported about black people being victims of hate crimes, you know. Uh, and I don't know if, if you heard it, but I think that was the guy that said something about, you know, we need to have a, uh, a rainbow community of resilience or something. I think that's how it was, how it was, uh, worded. Um, but other than that, that's all I have to share. Thanks for allowing me to speak. I wrote it down that, uh, Brian Levin, I wrote it down on the same sentence right above his name. He said, we're going to have patrols, a rainbow of community, of or oh, a community of resilience. He said we're going to have patrols, rainbow patrols, and a community of resilience about all this. I said, rainbow patrol. What? 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 I don't. It had the LGBTQ thing, and I, I couldn't even process like that. Communities of resilience. I say about that watching uh, community. But yeah, all of that. Just bear with me. Bear with me. Like I'm, I'm just gonna wow you. Like, whoa, old sneaky uh, Brian Levin, uh, and the folks. Now, the fellow was CBS. I'm not sure if that was a white person or a non-white person. Uh, I have to. You have to look at the video. I posted it online. Uh, folks can check out the video. It's from earlier this month. Uh, talking about Vincent Simmons, uh, the male that is interviewing the white twins. He was speaking kind of low because it, it sounded like he was trying to t- uh, the how do they say it? the phrase that he was trying to tread lightly. Like, I don't want to come in here and just say you called him a nigger. You know, like, so you told the police officer that all black people looked. And they like I said, there was no trepidation at all. Yep. Mm-hmm. All black people look like mm-hmm. he said. And, and, and then you said that all niggers look alike. And like I said. No, yep, mm-hmm, yep, that's what he said. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They could have stopped the whole report, like right there, like now. For like I said, forty-four years later, and it's still, yep, niggas is niggas. Vincent Simmons, privileged black male. Incidentally, if you watch that documentary, Shadow of Doubt, uh, which again, Mr. Simmons had to spend an additional like almost 25 years in greater confinement from the time that this documentary was produced. But yeah, uh, they revealed that these white twins were, well, I guess at that age, it, can, it would be statutory rape. They were raped by their white 18 year old cousin who was allegedly in the trunk at the time that Vincent Simmons raked them. Yeah. 
Uh, you can watch the documentary. Lots to say. Lots of blackmails. Like, I'm sure if you ever, like, if we ever, like, got the final tally on the number of times that this sort of thing happened, which they conceded in the report, probably lots and lots of Vincent Simmons. Like, wow. Anthony Broadwater, he said, I always liked having a night job because then I had verification. I had proof of my whereabouts. That right up there. I put that right beneath when Anthony Broadwater said, oh, no, I didn't have children. Like, oh, no way in the world. I would bring a child into this. Like, get to know your uh, registered sex offender dad. Then I get to sit around and hope the same thing doesn't happen to you. No, thank you. I put that right beneath that one. Always need to be at work. Make sure I can get two jobs, maybe three of them. That way they'll have me on surveillance camera and I have a time card. So, bing, I'll punch in. They'll know exactly where I was at. No chance that I raped anyone. Unfortunately, sometimes even that may not be enough. Our female caller, anybody else, things they need to get in before they wrap things up? Everybody satisfied? Yes, I'll go ahead and say my last was this year. Yeah, yeah, that's 44 years. That's when a man gets out, you know, his whole life is over. But they let him out. But before they let him out, well, they unshackled him, and then I guess they let him out, and then he had to go be reshackled to finish the paperwork. So it's just, it's just disgusting. Oh, okay. So Tesla, I think I already touched on the Tesla and um, black women in uh, AI. We just talked about that. Um, I remember that well, within that report, they did say that. Somebody had a, she gave an example. Somebody put in or puts the code in only for black cats to be recognized. I put a, I, I got the AI set on a gray cat. What am I looking at? So that means somebody put that code in. So it's not a bias. It's, it's a racist. Some racist put that code in. They kept saying it was biased. I'm like, no. That's nothing but racism. Um, and I got some bad, bad handwriting here. Oh, with the uh, reporting with the Asian people being on, hated on, I took note of them saying most of the people, I guess that was out there slapping the people or knocking the people out or punching the people, they did say most of those people were mentally ill not making it right, but just it, it was um, it was mentally it, it was mentally ill people. They even said it, and then um, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's all I wanted to touch on at the end there. You know, just thank you so much for having uh, the Cal's program. We get we get get information and we learn from it. So thank you. Much obliged. Uh, Hopefully worthy of your time and energy. Um, Yeah, the with regards to uh, 
Angel Bush. I mean, hey, uh, the caller in Ohio, he was saying, I think sometimes victims of white supremacy uh, in order to keep our job or whatever resources or sometimes for racists to not harm us. We're allowed to talk about racism. If we're allowed to talk about racism, it's within certain parameters, certain words we can use, certain words we cannot use. You can say bias. Implicit bias, intersectionality, discrimination, diversity, equality inclusion intolerance all of that is fine and dandy white supremacy racism whoa might have to do some budget cuts like wait a minute now you've gotten off script literally so lots of us we are conditioned the correct way to talk especially if we want to get on an outlet like NPR that type of a thing to talk about our program or what we uh, intend to do uh, and I thought that was important as well the segment talking about so-called hate crimes which again Aya Gruber she just said disproportionately black males gonna be charged with those uh, that a lot of these folks that they're looking at in these so-called attacks on individuals that are classified as Asian they have mental health problems why is this because consistently if it's a white person they got some sort of mental health issue like we won't even allow them to be called a racist it'll just be oh they gotta you know go to the institution and get them some help and all the rest of it why isn't that the case no they gotta be charged with hate crimes in addition to all the other punishments that they're gonna get and more patrols I even within that like more patrols like ooh. now in fact what I thought of immediately black male rapist of the day Amadou Diallo now you might hey he was shot 41 times Gus what are you talking about he's not the black male rapist of the day yes he is because do you know how that whole situation started they were looking for a serial black male rapist and Amadou Diallo you look like a black male rapist and that was the end of that. So I would not be excited about more patrols in the names of combating hate crimes. New York City sounds like a wonderful place right now. Hate crimes and yelping, white people yelping about crime. And we need facial recognition technology. And, and we got a new black mayor like, oh. I will hold off on visiting NYC for the time being. Uh, that's it. Uh, folks satisfied? I didn't see any other hands. Everybody good? Hey, Gus. Caller in Ohio. I just wanted to clarify something about what she was talking about with bias. Here's, here's why I want you guys to understand what's called a bias function. It, just, it pretty much decides what carries weight and what doesn't, what's going to be looked at thoroughly and what's not. And so if you get a chance, look at the term bias function because it is generally um, information that will explain to you what it means. So when you hear people talk about the uh, issues with AI and they talk about bias, if they know that most people don't know that there's an actual function that we use called the bias function, okay, then you'll think they're talking about like trying to skirt around racism. Now I'm not saying that you can't use the bias function to practice racism, but there's an actual mathematical function in the AI called a bias function. So they can be referring to the bias function just by saying, oh, there's bias in the AI. 
which is very accurate. You get what I'm saying? If you brought it to me and you said, hey, they said there's bias in AI, my first inclination as a practitioner is going to be, oh, they're talking about the bias function, okay? Now, they could be just trying to skirt around saying that the people who programmed the math behind it are racist. That's what I would say. But there's an actual term in artificial intelligence with, which we use is called a bias function, okay? So I want you guys to look that up so, so you can understand a certain terminology they're throwing out there that you, you might interpret one way, but it actually has a practical application in uh, machine learning and AI. That's all for me. Much obliged, our caller in Ohio. Learn something about everything that way. I never use the term bias to mean racism, white supremacy, so I would just, hey, my suspicion would be they're probably using the bias function or any other functions to practice racism, white supremacy, and leave it at that. Just make sure I don't say, which I don't do anyway, use bias to mean racism. Uh, with that I am not sure. I'll have to see about my expenditure of time and energy. We might be here tomorrow to do the Global Sunday Talk on Racism. It'd be short. It would be like an hour since I was thinking we weren't doing this. So have to see uh, if we'll do that tomorrow. Either way, we should be here Monday, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Not the black male rapist, the Duke lacrosse rape scandal. Wowzers. Looking forward to chatting up and with a white man, no less. Again, his book, The Price of Silence, William Cohen. Uh, you can check out that ESPN documentary uh, if you so choose. He should be featured. Lots of interesting tidbits there. Anywho, much obliged for folks who tuned in. Hope it was worthy of your Saturday evening. Uh, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need high functioning brain computers to solve this problem. Uh, in addition to being sober, if you're out and about, someone is being hostile and rowdy, exit. This is no time for verbal confrontations with strangers. You should be thinking this person, persons, she, he could be armed. She, he could have an entire armed entourage. If you didn't leave your residence, prepare to kill and or die, exit immediately. If you're in a vehicle, you're sober, buckled, not on the cell phone. We need all of our attention, paying attention to what's happening around us, trying to minimize contact with enforcement officers, race soldiers, badge or no, just doing the small things that we can. That's it. Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people victims of white supremacy we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest forms of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately no name calling no gossiping cows as listener supported counter racist radio invest if you think the program is constructive cows signing out thanks all for tuning in nigga you so brainwashed i'm a victim What's brother you a victim i'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning shut up the man has programmed my conditioning mm -hmm. even my conditioning has been conditioned <laughs>